Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I'm joined today, and I'm joined as always with a glass of whiskey in my hand. Um, I've got a little, a little bit of a sherry cask uh, gem in here that I that I've chosen to drink while I have a little chat with my wonderful business partner, my wonderful dear friend, the the never replicated. The they broke the mold when they made this guy. Uh, the inimitable Jason Johnston Yellen. How are you, sir? I'm well, thank you. You made me think of replicants. Oh. Is, is replicants a, a Blade Runner thing? Is is replicants uh, a V thing? Remember V from back in the eighties? I do remember a V thing, but I imagine. You just putting that question out there right now, Ian Allen has has just driven <laughs> off the road. He, I can't do the Scottish accent. He knows what a replicant is, and boom, off off the A ninety five he went. <laughs> so, so, so where would I have heard replicants? Uh, Blade Runner. It is Blade Runner. Yeah, it okay. is Blade Runner. Okay, I just question everything these days. I, I don't know anything. You just meant to question authority. That's it. That's the one thing I've stopped doing. Oh, right. Maybe because it's I am. Maybe it's because in my house, I, I say in my house, I am an authority. That's clearly not true. I don't <laughs> even know why I tried to say that. <laughs> I don't know what I was trying to get away with there. I'm in my office by myself claiming I'm an authority. Yeah, stick it to the man. With, within oh, your wait, office. Man. No, no, I'm not. Yeah. Within your office room. Uh, I knew you, you would pick up on that thread. <laughs> yep, in my office room. You are definitely <laughs> the authority. Dear listeners, I, I like the fact that before we hit record, I said, yeah, it doesn't really matter what we pour. We definitely will not be talking about it on the podcast. And then in the intro, you started alluding to the whiskey in your glass. Because, and here's why, because I think it's very important that we tell people what we're drinking. Because I'm drinking something that, I'm drinking something to prepare me for the Jewish New Year. Ah. See that? Ah. Which, when this goes live, will have happened. Will have happened. Yeah, yeah. We'll be in day two of of Rosh Hashanah because because Indeed. it's a two day holiday. So I poured Indeed. something very sweet, very comforting, and I, I could imagine drinking this with a little bit of apple pie, a little American apple pie. And that is twenty uh, year old bottle by exclusive malts. It says it's from a Highland distillery. But I can tell you, it's from the same distillery that our buddy Glenn, who likes more oranges, is from. Is it known in the marketplace as Westport? It's known as the marketplace as Westport. That's right. (laughs) God bless Google. Nothing's a secret anymore, is it? (laughs) Yeah. Well, since you're you're throwing out details, I will say I am drinking a a Julio's cask exclusive. It Mm. is a heavily sherried. 2005 Lefroig with a wonderful name. PX, I love you. Mm. I got you that. And bottle. if that doesn't speak to your introduction, yeah. I don't know what does. Yeah, I, I got you that. I was trying to tell you something. I said, here's a bottle, Jason. <laughs> 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 Wait, and then I PayPal'd you for it. Oh, yeah, what then, does that yes. say? <laughs> <laughs> All of a sudden, so, I'm a sex worker. Uh, sorry, continue. You were going to say something. <laughs> That was the thought in the back of my head. But anywho, (laughs) anywho. um, Yeah, you had me pay you through OnlyFans. That was the part I found surprising. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, so, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take us in a direction before we get to the introduction of today's guest. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't want to spend an episode on this question, although we could. And, and maybe in the past, we maybe even have. But as we sit here on this fifth day of September, mm-hmm. 2021, yeah. I was having a wee think to myself today. And I was thinking, when we started this company mm-hmm. in 2010, we had a sense of what the next five years were going to look like within whiskey. Mm-hmm. We knew what whiskey industry had looked like from about 2005, 2006, with this new striking boom. Everybody was turning on the taps. We're 2011. But the, the conversation, right? The, oh, the conversation yeah, yeah. of the company, okay. 2010, okay. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, I got gotcha. you. And yeah. we're trying to we're trying to look into the future. Gotcha. Okay. Continue. So, yeah. yeah. So, so, so we knew where the industry was 2005, 2006, turning on the taps full time. Mm-hmm. We knew that when we started 2010, this is a wee bit tricky to get some casks. But we thought, well, if we go through the next five years, we figured. Doors would open, and, and they did, right? Yeah. By the time oh, we yeah. got to about 2016 as a company, we started to see some more casts. We launched the retail line in the US in 2017 as a response to the increased casts we were seeing. Yep. And we looked another five years into the future, and we thought we saw a particular pattern in place, yeah. which was more opening of doors, more cask availability. And as I... As I stood here this this fifth day of September 2021, we got it right the first five years. We we were really spot on and mm. we really hit a number of marks. Mm-hmm. Even to the point of 2019, we launched global retail, right? Yeah. And so I felt like there was nine years, even 10 years, where we kept getting it right. Mm-hmm. And as I look around now and we're seeing... Mm. <laughs> Thank you. That is the correct response. <laughs> yeah. Right. We're we're seeing a little bit of distilleries, even in Scotland, not wanting their name used. You just mentioned this Highland. We're talking about Westport, right? Yep. We're we've got this little bit of of no names being used. We're seeing cask availability, but prices are kind of garbage, right? We've got independent bottlers appearing day in and day out. And what does that mean? We've got the rise of the investment market for casks. And Mm. what that means, as I was kind of thinking my way through it today, and I know we've talked about it on and off over the course of of the podcast, One Nation Under Whiskey and Extra Extra, given your work with Impex, given your work with distilleries in Scotland, given your work with distilleries who aren't in Scotland, given your work with Single Cast Nation, given what you and I talk about, even given what we talked about before we came on air today, which is auctions and auction bottles and something's going on because there's some crazy numbers here. What are you... Not necessarily just what are you seeing, but what do you think... Mm-hmm. the landscape will look like over the next five years. And obviously, we're in a pandemic, in glass shortage, mm. and we're recovering from tariffs. And and I know these are all things that we've discussed here and there, but I couldn't, I couldn't answer on your behalf today when I was thinking about this. And that made me realise 
I haven't asked you this question recently. Yeah. And I thought it would be great for the listeners to hear this conversation as well. So, as I said, I don't want this to be an entire episode. <laughs> Over the next 10 minutes. Okay. Give me, give me a sense. And, and if we can have a back and forth, that'll be to the good as well. But what are you seeing and what do you think that means for the next five years? Well, on the independent side of things, I'm, it's all, it, there's a lot of doom and gloom. I mean, that, that is where my head is at. When you said the cask pricing is kind of garbage, I think you could have <laughs> removed the word kind of or kind of mm-hmm. and just said mm-hmm. garbage. Because, mm-hmm. because unfortunately, the cask investment market, which we've talked about before, we talked about it recently in, in an extra extra, and I'm sure we've talked mm-hmm. about it in, in a few other One Nation Under Whiskey episodes, that cask investment market has negatively affected the casks that were normally meant to be sold to bottlers like you and me and like all of our friends within the industry. And I can't necessarily fault a broker for wanting to say, look, I can sell you this cask for 5,000 pounds, or I can sell this punter for our American listeners, you know, just a consumer, right? The same cask for 30,000 pounds. If I can make five times my money because someone else wants to buy this, I'm going to make my money, right? That's, that's capitalism. I, I, I get that. I fear that that will only continue to rise because more and more cast investment companies are popping up. More and more are, are really doing their sales pitches. And how many people have come to us, people who just simply don't know, they say, oof, what do you think of this, right? And what do we tell them every time? Run to the hills, run for your life, <laughs> and, and other Iron Maiden songs, um, and 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 not necessarily run to the hills, run for your life, because it's affecting our business. There, there is definitely that aspect of it, and I keep that in the back of my mind. But really, I want to protect them, because as we mentioned in a previous episode of Extra Extra. The cost of casks right now for investors are at their peak, and it's like yeah. it's like buying a Superman number one, you know, or uh, whatever number one. Yeah, yeah. At the peak, right? So run to the hills. So, so when it comes to the independent side, I I'm I'm a bit nervous about casks for us all. I'm a bit more nervous for the newer independent bottlers who who don't have the long relationships that we have, right? Here we are, like you'd said, we started thinking about the company in 2010. We incorporated in 2011. We're, we're, we're 10, almost 11 years into this. And so we have the relationships in place that thankfully allow us to buy liquid at a, a decent <laughs> price. But I fear for others. So, so that's that side of it. From the distillery side of it, I'm, I'm a little less doom and gloom. I think the distilleries are going to do an okay job, at least, at least here in the U.S., right? And for a few reasons. A, it's their liquid. It's their bottles, their livery. They have full control. 
within the U.S. market, now you can do both 70 and 75 CL bottles or, you know, 700 milliliter, 750 milliliter bottles. So they can, there are a few obstacles to putting liquid in a bottle and getting it sold within the U.S. market. Bourbon prices are skyrocketing. So I'm seeing more, you know, there, there was... A few years ago, we said, ooh, people, bourbon people are starting to look at rums, right? Well, that's interesting. They're expanding <laughs> their palate. And now I'm seeing bourbon people go toward mezcal. And now I'm seeing bourbon people go toward sherry cask scotch whiskey. So I think it's good for scotch whiskey that, you know, maybe some, some bourbon people are looking to, to venture out a little bit but I will guarantee that's going to start raising prices up, right? Because it becomes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it becomes a supply and demand issue. You know, just, just, just really quickly back to the auctions. You and I were looking at some bottles that we always look at, and they typically went for maybe 140 pounds, maybe 150 pounds, and now we're seeing them for 360, 400 yeah. pounds. And for, yep. for no good reason. Here, here's a really good example. Springbank uh, 2010, 10-year-old local barley sherry cask. There were 22 of them on a recent auction we were looking at today. All of them sitting at 560 pounds for a friggin' 10-year-old Springbank. Come on. That's, that's, just, <laughs> that's just goddamn ridiculous. So, so I think there's bright spots where you're going to find deals and people are going to find good whiskey at good prices from distilleries. Yes. But there's going to be the, the papification of certain brands. And, and I think Springbank, unfortunately, is getting a bit of a papification to it, just like Foursquare has gotten a bit of a papification to it. And, yeah, yeah, no doubt. Right? And what is it going to look like for the... Right? I'm just talking about right now this is christmas present that i'm talking about right now uh christmas future i i i don't for christmas future for us or christmas future for the consumer just to interject a second ago you talked about rosh hashanah and now you're talking about christmas like we are really bouncing around the calendar (laughs) and the holidays so my but you 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 asked about the next five years right yeah. yeah For us, for us, for us, but what might the consumer expect from us, if if that makes sense? From us. Can I put some, some leaves on the branch? Please do, because because I'm just going to go, ne- I'm going to go negative. I, ju- I don't have yeah, a positive outlook on much of anything these days, so... When, give, when they go low, we go high, Joshua. When they go low, we find a shovel and see if we can go even lower. <laughs> Hit the ground floor. So, well, so one of the things that, w- that we've hung our hats on for, for many years is $10 per year. Yes. Four, you know, four whiskeys, essentially, 10 years and above. 10 years and younger, you can't quite work the same matrix. But for scotch... Coming out of Scotchland, we were aiming for 10 per year. Mm-hmm. Given we're talking about ridiculous pricing, given we're also talking about chasing contracts. 
we might not be able to continue to offer $10 per year. So we might need to increase a little bit. We might look like we're going back on a promise to the consumer. At the same time, look at the changes in pricing that you're talking about amongst consumers Mm -hmm. across the secondary market, right? Pricing is so hard to predict right now because some things just take off and, and hit the sky, you know, they hit the ozone. And so... If we're changing there, how much are we changing there? How confident are we in getting a range of distilleries? One of the things I talked about in a recent panel that I was on is you speak to the general whiskey consumer, and there's about five, six, seven, eight distilleries that they're always interested in, right? Mm-hmm. Highland Park, Ardbeg, Laphroaig, Springbank, yeah. right? There's right, there's a couple, Glenmorangie might be one of those as well, right? Mm-hmm. You, you could throw in five or six or seven or eight, you know, currently we're 120, 130, 140 working Scottish distilleries. Mm-hmm. And and your average whiskey consumer wants to go searching for five or six or seven or eight of those. Yeah. To me, the next five years is a doubling down on how do we put a thrust in front of the consumer? How do we put Dal Ewan in front of the consumer? How do we go out of our way? Manock Moore is something we talk about internally. Glenn Grant is something we talk about yeah. internally. Like, how do we double down on getting our consumers, those who believe and trust in single cast nation, how do we get them to say, okay, I know we're on the same boat for five or six or seven or eight distilleries, but tell me about this Othrusk. Right, mm. which which I mentioned because Elijah loves it, right? Yep. And then we make fun I love of him the for, as well, right? You're both perverts, right? <laughs> like you know, I, I want to bottle more Lechig, but pricing has gone stupid on Lechig. Um, you know, it, it's to me, it's that. What do independent bottlers do, mm. and how do independent bottlers deliver that to a consumer? So. And I'm I'm with you. I, I can get as as negative and as doom and gloom as anybody. Yeah. But but if we seriously wear the hat of being an independent bottler, mm-hmm. what does that mean for the next five years as we communicate and deliver to our consumer? Well, we're always going to do our best to keep prices down. So. I would say whether it's us or it's any other bottler, you've got to do it smart. You buy whiskey young, you get it. If the liquid isn't great, you you re-rack it and you wait around a little bit while you look for the other deals or if you've got distillery direct relationships where pricing's a bit better than it is from, from some brokers, right? You can kind of work it that way, and we will continue to do that to try to keep our prices as close to that ten dollars per year as we can. But but I would, I would imagine it's going to go up, and not just from us, but from others. If if you see it go up from us, it's going to go up with others as well. Hundred percent, yeah, <clears throat> but absolutely. As you as you were putting those leaves on the branches, because you know me, I, I'm. I do my very best to be an active listener, but I'm always trying to think of my my brain is I can't shut it off. It just doesn't. But I got to thinking about the situation we all found ourselves in 
come 2005, 6, and 7 when the housing market crashed because of really poor banking regulations allowing people who didn't have money to buy houses, right? And then everybody can just watch the big short and then you get the full, <laughs> the full glimpse of that. Here we are 18-ish months into COVID and over the last 18 months, that's where costs of casts have really gone up. That's where costs of bottlings have gone up. That's where costs of bottling on, uh, sorry, bottlings on um, auction sites have gone up. Everybody's home. They're bored. They've got <laughs> nothing to do. And my fear is they've got credit cards and they're maxing mm. them out. And we may find ourselves in another situation of poor purchasing decisions. It reaches a breaking point. It affects our economy. Of course, then it affects how bottles move from shelves. And if bottles don't move from shelves to make room for new bottles moving onto those shelves, then we could see a shrinkage. We could, see, we could see shrinkage uh, of, of costs for casks. That's my hope. But the unfortunate thing is, I, I think to get back to, to pricing that is good, people have to be affected in a negative way. Something has to happen, right? The peaks yeah. and troughs yeah. within the industry have always been tied to some sort of global economic downturn or upturn. Yeah, the dam has to break in right. some way. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So, so with that said, and and with half an eye on where we're going in today's episode, one of the things we've been doing in in twenty twenty one is breaking new ground mm -hmm. with American distilleries. Yes, and and exploring that world further, and and really putting Elijah front and center in those growing relationships, mm -hmm. uh, which, which has been a, a wonderful use. One of the things you and I have talked about for years is there's, there's not enough hours in the day <laughs> and bringing in a third person who somehow also never has enough hours in the day, but <laughs> they're not hours we have to find. We're just leaving him to find them. So it's been really exciting. Uh, and over the next couple of episodes, You'll hear us talking to Virginia Distillery Company, mm -hmm. which today. is the subject yep. of today with Amanda Beckwith. And then we'll follow that up with another American distiller. We're not going to say who that is right at this exact second, but it's a great conversation. It's somebody we're revisiting mm -hmm. and it's yes. somebody that we thoroughly enjoy talking to every yeah. single time. So, so I'm excited for that future episode as well. But the reason I'm excited... And I know it'd be easy to go down a, a doom and gloom, but the reason I'm excited is there are not only American producers doing some exciting things, mm -hmm. but as we've talked about on the podcast many, many times, we've, we're hearing more about Australian and New Zealand producers mm, and yeah. Australian and New Zealand fans of those producers and, and of Scotch and of mm -hmm. Single Cast Nation. Mm -hmm. So... As I'm kind of looking at, okay, Scotland and where's the future and what's happened with casks, there are other countries that are doing wonderful things as well. And, and we've talked about our, 
our friend Scott and Becky at Catoctin Creek a lot, a mm. lot, a lot, a lot. And our friends at Westland, a lot, a lot, a lot. But they're not alone in this. Yeah. And and I'm excited to get out and explore and have conversations and see what the future holds with those producers in other countries as well. I, I can't really add too much to that. I, I think I think it's I think that's well said. You know, they're when when bourbon goes crazy, where else do you look? When Scotch whiskey goes crazy, where else do you look? And it's not as if you're now looking in places where they're making a lesser product. They're making equally as wonderful a product, just different flavors, right? So, so that is that is exciting. Um, thank you. I re- I really needed that because I I could have gone down that doom and gloom rabbit hole, and and the noose only goes so far until I hang myself. So. Yeah. Well, and it's it's easier for me to focus on the positives when I'm telling somebody else about them, as opposed <laughs> to just sitting here looking in a mirror saying, "Oh gosh, this is this is going to be tricky." So, so today is Amanda Beckwith. Mm-hmm. On the day I spoke with Amanda, which believe it or not, now stretches back to the end of July, and the summer just disappeared. Absolutely disappeared. It's unbelievable. But on that day, she was grappling with a new job title. And so we will, at the beginning of today's interview, we will cover that new job title and I will allow her to to put that into the podcast. But she was so enthusiastic, so knowledgeable. And I even got to spend an hour or two wandering the distillery, the warehouse, the bottling line mm. with Amanda, just getting a feel for Virginia Distillery Company, which is only an hour and a quarter from my house. Oh, that's beautiful. And this was my first trip down to see them, which it's hard to... <sighs> It's hard to admit how terrible I've been about not going to visit them. And it just, you know, we're busy all the time. So finally it worked. Finally it happened. And it was even better than I could have imagined. Mm. And we got to talk a bit about Jim Swan, the relationships that we have as a company with Jim Swan um, distilleries with whom he consulted back in the day. Mm -hmm. And then there were um, some other consultants that she dealt with, that she gets to talk about in this interview as well, that was really terrific. And then as you listen through towards the end of this distillery, (laughs) and as you listen through towards the end of this interview, there will be a piece of news dropped within an interview. So I'm excited for that. I haven't listened to the interview yet, so it'll be nice to hear it all the way through. Do I know this news? Yeah, absolutely you do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I didn't go completely rogue on the day. But um, but yeah, without further ado, if if there are any words you'd like to utter for the audience, for the dear listener. Enjoy. Amanda, thanks for joining us today. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) I love it. First things first, as we've wandered around the distillery, we've been trying to come to grips with your job title. For the for the sake of our listeners, what what do you do around here (laughs) and how do you describe that to people? 
Well, it's been a journey. I was hired to be the guest experience manager back in 2015. So uh, April 2015, our visitor center was literally a hole in the ground. And uh, we put it together. My background was from the Virginia Aquarium. So I knew tourism through that. Ah, I loved whiskey. But yes. Over in? Virginia Beach. Okay. Virginia Beach. I feel like I've been to one. Was it Virginia Beach? Okay. Possibly. Okay. It's it's a beautiful place and they do a lot of really great things. Awesome. Uh, a lot of research and rescue. So okay. yeah, that was uh, my background and I was hired to put together a team to give tours, uh, to come up with cocktail planning and tastings, all of those things. And of course the world evolved very quickly from there. But the, uh, the coolest thing for me was really the fact that I needed to educate myself and the team. So I did the Bourbon Trail, went to Scotland, met uh, some incredible mentors who really helped me along the way. And before I knew it, I wasn't just educating internally. I was educating <laughs> externally as well from distributors and agencies to going on TV spots and talking American single malt. So it's been a really fun trip. So when you made that move from the aquarium to the Virginia Distillery Company, were you a, a, a passionate whiskey lover? Were you a passionate tourism person? What did that background look like that brought you specifically to a distillery? It was this hybrid love, I think, of whiskey itself, food, culture, mm. history. Everything came together. And then I love I love people. And I love sharing something I'm passionate about. And so I was part of an online book club. And <laughs> they said, I know this is a strange story, uh, but we were looking for cool places to meet. And somebody said, hey, this distillery is opening in Nelson County. We should check it out. And I thought, it's going to be bourbon. I know it. So I <laughs> went online and did some research. And it said American Single malt and I don't know what came over me but before I knew it I'd written a cover letter I said things about liking chocolate and coffee I'm pretty <laughs> sure I'm not sure what all went into it but I just was myself and I put this together I sent it in I didn't even know what they were looking for and I thought maybe I'll help out on weekends or who yeah, knows yeah, yeah. and I got a call saying hey we'd like to meet you we are opening a visitor center and it sounds like you'd be a great fit because we need somebody who can come in and help shape this wow. so that's right what place, happened right time exactly Wow. So did you have a spark then in your in your own private whiskey life? <laughs> I did. My He's practically my brother, Josh. We grew up as friends and he loved whiskey and he was a chef. So we would plan these dinners around whiskey and food. And it was just our passion hmm. to, to come up with these things, these collaborations. And we love to travel very much. And, you know, even before you can drink legally in the United States, <laughs> mm -hmm. you can definitely experience culture through food and cuisine and whiskey throughout the world. So that was a big part of my heart. Wow. Yeah. So did your palate move in a particular direction? You had particular favorites? What did that look like? I've always loved single malt and I think Japanese whiskey was the first that really grabbed me. I loved mm -hmm. the sense of layers that you got this blend of esters from fermentation, the malt character, and then you also had this this play. And of course, we've seen Japanese whiskey evolve over time, especially sure. knowing what comes from Scotland, what comes from Japan. Uh, but that intrigued me. 
And I loved that it wasn't an oak bomb. It wasn't just the rye spice that really hit my palate in a cool way. And I remember the first time I had Yamazaki 12. It was Mm -hmm. a decade ago. Um, (laughs) But I remember I was sitting on a porch with a lemon crumb bar and that pairing. I'll never forget it. And that's how I am with whiskey. I always have been. I remember the food I had with the first time I I had a dream of whiskey. It's... We're so hardwired to to piece together those memories and to piece together those food pairings and how they elevate the spirit. So tenuous uh, transition alert. You're you're not just, and I don't want to belittle that that role that you had. It was an important role, but you're not just the visitor experience person at this distillery anymore. Well, what are you now doing? Here? <laughs> well, my official title as of a week ago is lead blender. Okay, so it's something I've been doing. Thank you. I've been doing it for years. Uh, thank you to, to Nancy Fraley, my mentor and Gareth Moore, our CEO. Um, Nancy came to visit. She was helping us with our first release. Uh, we did a, an American blended malt aged in uh, Scotland and aged here in Virginia, married together, finished in true port barrels and local port style wine casks. And it was a fun project and Nancy really lent her expertise. And she asked some questions, got to know me pretty quickly and said, hey, you've got a really good palate. You need to be using this. And so I was tasked to build a sensory program here. And so I did that and uh, I've been working on it for years now. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So it's it's been great to work with our team. Uh, You've met Brian Hersey, our Southern Warehouse Manager, and Dustin Castor, our Production Manager. And just having this collaboration between the three of us we really shepherd the whiskey from the stills into the bottle i, I want to get onto your new make in just a second because i'm lucky enough to have it in front of me as we both do but what particular challenges do you face in charge of the blending program the sensory program with an american single malt distiller well just as there are many regions of Scotland, I feel like the United States is a massive country. <laughs> Geographically, there's a lot to work with. So one of my biggest challenges is people's expectations. Hmm. And so, of course, American single malt is a new category. We're still working to get all of that defined <laughs> by the TTV, hopefully this year. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Fingers crossed. And I love single malt because it does deliver that sense of place. But for me, that's very different than the amazing stuff being made in Texas or Washington or Colorado. It's very different. So people's expectations and letting the distillate shine through the maturation environment, which is very unique in Virginia. Could you talk to us about that for us? Because obviously I live in Virginia and I know what the summers are like, the springs, the falls. Um, what are you experiencing as a, a whiskey maker, a whiskey producer in this Virginia climate? Well, one of our first mentors was Dr. Jim Swan and he told us, Virginia is a four-season subtropical climate, and the wow. word that's hidden in there is humid. <laughs> yeah, right. Gosh. And so we have a joke when we're going to Scotland. You probably can agree. January, July, you can pack the same suitcase, <laughs> and that's not the case in Virginia. You need a suitcase every day. <laughs> it's just uh, a massive swing between um, 
very hot summers that are very humid. We've hit 108 degrees here. And then the cooler, drier winters. And these big swings don't just happen seasonally, though. We can have big variances in 24 hours. So we can see 40 to 60 degree drops Mm. um, within a day. And that means the barrel staves that expand in the hotter weather and contract in the cooler weather, they're getting a workout. And what might be spring, summer, fall, winter in Scotland is happening multiple times a day here. Wow. Yeah. That's so fascinating. We talked about this a little bit in the warehouse, barrel house, rick house. What's your word for it? I use cask house for the two larger ones. Yes. (laughs) So so as we were spending time in the cask house, thank you, um, we were talking about the potential to fall down that rabbit hole of what's this cask doing at 6 a.m.? What's this cask doing at noon? What's this cask doing at 6 p.m.? Just to your point about that daily swing in a cask. And one of the things we have been exploring is maturation being non-linear. And you you nodded your head when we were in the cask house and you're nodding your head now. And I, I do want to hear you speak to that in a second. But how do you avoid not completely losing your mind when it comes to this cask is different on July 22nd in the morning, at lunchtime, in the evening, and you're being asked to pull something within a season or within a month. How how does that even work in a way that you don't go crazy? I think the first few years I almost did, just trying to wrap my mind around it and figuring out what to expect. It's been a learning curve. Absolutely. Uh, but the big picture has been a really beautiful one. And part of that is because we, we have this motto of we let the whiskey tell us when it's ready. Mm-hmm. And being able to track things like thermal banding and humidity pockets, we have sensors placed. That's been helpful. We can start to predict things. Uh, as years of data accrue, we're able to make predictions in a better way. But yes, um, the best advice that I've been given and that I've been able to pass on to the team here came from Nancy. And she said, you know, season to season, it will change. And she's right. It's not linear. It is very much (laughs) cyclical and being able to say, now is the window. Now is the time to pull these casks or, you know what, we're going to wait. And so of course we need to always have the distillate ready to roll for bottling. And that means we have to work ahead of the game in a Mm. big way. How far? Well, so another thing I've learned is to avoid rapid reduction. So we bottle, the lowest ABV we bottle at is 92 proof. And so being able to make our selections, do the vatting, get the blending just right, and then uh, we do reductions as slow as 1% a week. So that can take months. Wow. I know. And that means we need space, which is why we've been building this vatting house. (laughs) We took advantage of COVID and just went for construction full force. (laughs) There is a lot going on out there. Yes. So... (laughs) here's the trouble every time you answer one of my questions I've got three more questions I like it I'm I want to hear about this new make that we have in front of us talk us through this new make because as a company we talk about distillery DNA and for us the new make is at the heart of that anything we taste in cask we're bringing it back to the new make DNA. But also you've mentioned this name Nancy a couple of times and and I know who you're talking about, but I want us to revisit and talk about 
the multiple people, industry titans, who had a role in the building, the growth of this distillery. So the reason I'm telling you the question that's coming next is so that you'll help me remember. But let's come back to this new make spirit because you've seen me nosing it while you've been answering questions. Talk to us about this. What's What's going in here? How much can you tell us about yeast, strength, distillation run, capacity, all the details. The, the listeners want to nerd out with you right now, so no detail is too geeky. So go crazy. Fabulous. Well, yes, uh, we are the largest independently owned American single malt producer. So our capacity is pretty large. And when we were getting started, we were gifted with mentorship. So my first mentor, Nancy Fraley, has been huge. She is called The Nose. And I'll talk about her more in a second. We also had Jim Swan, the maturation expert. And then the other name that I have to give love to is Harry Coburn. And he came from uh, Bowmore. He was an engineer there, has been in the industry for decades. I think he first retired back in the 70s, <laughs> but he loves it so much he doesn't want to stop. And he's been such a, a wonderful resource. And he's the one who said, you know, the, the new make itself is your first indicator of quality. And so when it comes to our new make, which I can drink <laughs> happily by itself right now, there's this character that comes, I think, first from the quality of the barley itself. So we use two-row spring barley. We've grown some here on site. The nitrogen levels in Virginia soil make it pretty tricky. So we've been fortunate. Yeah, we have uh, almost 300 farmers that we've worked with to supply the two-row spring barley that we need. And they're all through the North Midwest, the lower reaches of Canada. And it's been great to have that through supply chain issues because we're always covered and it's great quality. So I'm very grateful for that. Um, We mill it, of course, ourselves here on site. And from there, after milling, we do the mash. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. that work goes right into our fermentation tanks where we use two different types of yeast. One is the workhorse. Um, We keep them both proprietary. But the other one we selected because of the esters it delivers. Mm -hmm. So through the three days of ferment time, we really get these beautiful tropical fruit notes. Uh, I described banana nut bread to you earlier, I think. And that's really what I get over this time. So by the time we're done, we have beer. It's about 8% ABV. I compare it to uh, a Belgian or Saison style. It's not hop, not bitter. It's just a really delicious beer. Yep. And then we double distill in our copper pot stills. You don't do peated on site, am I correct? No, no. Uh, we've talked about it in the past and it might be an experimental down the road, but my inclination and what I've talked to our CEO Gareth about is maybe doing something with barrels and not mm. messing with the barley itself. Mm-hmm. How do you share how long you are fermenting? Three days, 72 hours. Okay, 72 hours on that one. And then how are you finding seasonal differences in that fermentation? Are you getting warmer summers affecting flavors in the ferment differently than colder days affecting flavors? We've learned to be able to control the temperature inside the fermentation tanks. Because of that, we actually have been able to get very close data on, okay, this is where it goes into the dormancy stage. This is where it's going to be more active. And we never want to lose that on flavor. That's so crucial to us. So making sure we control the temperature to give the yeast enough time to really deliver on those notes that we're looking for. That's so crucial because we know that once we're through for the fermentation, all we're going to be doing is concentrating those flavors mm-hmm. in the distillation process. Mm-hmm. And what type of volume are, is going into the wash still and then coming through your spirit still? 10,000 liters or 2,600 gallons per tank. 
So same thing, that 10,000 liter volume can go right into our wash still. Only one third of what goes in comes out as low wines. Uh, The two thirds left behind are pot ales. So we give them to local farmers as fertilizer. So it's kind of a a cool relationship there. And you were saying, just like we know and are familiar with in Scotland, your draft is going to local farmers for cattle feed. Early Don Dairy in Crozet, Virginia. Look at that shout (laughs) out. Yes. (laughs) So so talk us through flavor profile on on the new make here uh, as we're sticking our, our nose in it you if I've gleaned from you during my time with you you've mentioned texture in a few places are you cognizant are, are you enjoying are you promoting the texture in your new make spirit very much I think that that's a big part of, of the experience the mouthfeel and so for me even the nose ties into that mouthfeel when I'm nosing it I get a little touch of diacetyl that buttery note and I think that comes through with that richness on the palate that I look for it's that blend of not too oily but decadent enough so Joshua and I spent years regular listeners to the podcast know what I'm about to say Joshua and I spent years talking about nose texture and it wasn't until we were in the sensory lab at Westland that Westland have a checkbox for nose texture. In listening to you now, are you suggesting nose texture is a thing? That- I absolutely ah! am. It's true. <laughs> happy days, happy validation. <laughs> but but you're talking about almost like a like a butteriness to the nose almost as if one would sniff a a, maybe a a gently melting butter or some warming butter in a pan is that what you're talking about absolutely and that's diacetyl yes look at that we've learned a word today (laughs) vocabulary with amanda (laughs) i was an english major i didn't go to that point but (laughs) it's true yeah it really it does have a richness to the nose and it leads when was this pulled from still I, I know you're not necessarily running today uh, wh- when would this have have passed through this the was still? two weeks ago okay. so this is a sample from two weeks back it is interesting that difference between new make as it runs it's so volatile it's such a volatile spirit that getting it from the still you know opening the spirit safe and popping a finger in or or half a glass um is so different than a sample, even in glass or in a a food-safe plastic bottle, a week later, two weeks later. And I sometimes find those volatiles that you're all too familiar with coming from the still flatten a little, soften somewhat. And I've got a little softer note on the nose here. Are you seeing that difference as someone who's around the stills day in and day out? Absolutely. It's mellowed a bit. So there is a soft floral note and then the fruit comes in, but it is more subdued now than it was when we pulled it right off the safe. Yeah, I, I'm such a fan of New Make Spirit and I have enjoyed having my own bottles of New Make Spirit you know, in my office. But it's at a tasting, some New Make is better than no New Make, but New Make from the Spirit State Safe is completely different from new make out of a bottle. It's raw and fresh in this beautiful way. Mm-hmm. And I almost feel like you can experience it at even higher temperatures. I remember being at Colhoman uh, with with a group, a whiskey group. I remember Bino uh, being on my left side. And we were pulling 74.5% new make spirit straight from the spirit safe. It was so drinkable, so accessible. Not tight, like sometimes you get a mature single malt at high strength can be tight 
I've never experienced tight numic. I know exactly what you mean. Uh, the highest we typically go is 78% ABV, and it is shockingly just quaffable. And I love... That's the word. <laughs> I, I love getting to know it that way. And you'll see people pour a little out on their hands, let the alcohol evaporate off. But for me, I don't even need to do that. You mm -hmm. really see the character shining through. Mm. Yeah, this is it's really bright across the palate as well. When I was nosing and doing a little sip earlier, I was almost getting a biscuity quality. For, for me in the UK, it would be hobnobs. Here in America, it's almost like oatmeal cookie meets sugar cookie. There's the sweetness, but there's also the grain. And I love it when the grain still tells its story. That's the goal. It's never lose that. Right? No. And so as, as you taste it, you're familiar with the barley that comes through the mill that then goes into the mash. Describe the flavors of that barley to me and as you see it presented in the new make spirit. I love that you mentioned oatmeal raisin cookies for me because that's something, there's this expected cereal character, but for me, there's a sweet spice that kind of hints through. And when I say spice, a lot of people mm. think rye and peppery, nothing like that at all. This is more of a, a warming cinnamony sort of note, which you expect from the barrels themselves, yeah. but I actually can detect that from the grain as well. Mm. It's so good. So as you take this this new make with this particular characteristic and you're thinking about the maturation of this, ultimately the in-house blending, vatting, mixing, you know, uh, for a particular release, what ideally are you looking for the cask to do with your spirit? I'm looking for the cask to deliver layers. So for me, quality comes from complexity. And I want to be able to have a story told by the whiskey. I don't want anything to ever be one note. And I want it mm -hmm. to evolve and open up. So I want a story and I want to participate in that. So that means sitting down. I mentioned earlier, a good whiskey is something I want to pair with a dog and a good book by a fireplace. <laughs> but I want it to set a scene and I yeah. want it to contribute to that. And maybe that's pairing with food. Maybe that's just something that I'm going to sit down with a friend and for an hour watch it evolve and open up. But I want to have something that hits me from all my senses and of course, that's the mouthfeel. Of course, it's the aromas, but it's also, you know, so much of the different flavors working their way over my tongue. And I was lied to mm -hmm. as a kid. I was told, you know, there's a part of your tongue with the sweet uh, yeah. taste buds, one with the sour. But no. And so allowing it to just work its way throughout my mouth, there's so much to be told and so much to unfold. So I know you were talking earlier about letting the cask tell the story. But is there a particular house style. When you put out the Virginia Distillery Company flagship release, is there a story that you want that bottle telling every time? And, and that for us as independent bottlers, looking at you in that task that you have, that's the challenge that you've got there. We don't have to worry so much about that. What are you faced with as you're thinking about representing your distillery? with regards to a flagship bottling? I think part of my story needs to be something that intrigues people every time, that's something that makes you think. 
And of course we want our DNA, that core idea of who we are to come through consistently from every batch. And so for our flagship release of Courage and Conviction American Single Malt, I was thinking I want our, our barley to shine through. And barley is such a beautiful base. Mm-hmm. Of course people love it because the enzymes, it does this great job of converting the starches over with the sugar. You need that for alcohol, obviously, but I also love the flavors and the delicate nature there. And of course, playing in with the the fruit and floral notes from fermentation, that balance, striking that every time is crucial. And then you get the barrels coming in. And the barrels are often considered the rock stars, and I love them very much. (laughs) Uh, But being able to showcase just these different notes. So for me, I like chocolate and I like nuttiness, but I never want that to become the dominant thing. I want to make sure that when somebody gets the whiskey, they can nose through and still see they're the dried apricots. Mm -hmm. There's the, okay, I see that tropical fruit shining through and maybe they have to work for it a little bit, but it shouldn't be too hard at all to start to detect that DNA. So I'm curious for you when, we're looking at Oloroso maturation and we're looking at PX maturation and we're looking at ex-bourbon maturation and we talked about first fill bourbon. Are there moments when you feel the DNA being lost and do you then use other casks to represent the DNA but then the quote-unquote the lost DNA casks to deliver other flavors? How does one put together uh, a blend? Well, I came up with a bit of a grading system. I based it off of Nancy Fraley. She had this ABC ranking, and it's not at all like a grade you would give a student for their work. C is what she considers foundational. Mm. B is something a little bit more complex and well-rounded, and A was something that really stood out as unique or distinctive. And so I took that and ran with it and delivered uh, an addition of one, two, three for levels of development. And then, of course, course you need nuance so we add the pluses and the minuses I just went crazy (laughs) from there Uh, but for me yes I'm absolutely looking for barrels that still have the expected notes but when I find those a barrels that's a great thing because I will always be able to find a place for it quality speaks for itself and so when I come across a chocolate covered cherry barrel (laughs) I can do different things with it I might think this might be really fun to set it aside and do it as a single cask but it might really be great to put in with a batch of 30 other casks or more and let it deliver these notes to sing along the side and, and layer in the complexity. Because again, I think that's what makes a great whiskey. So I'm not afraid of unique flavors. <laughs> <laughs> so so, so let, let's use this moment to bring Nancy into the conversation. So, so talk to us about Nancy. Talk to us about your role with Nancy and then move into Jim. The regular listeners have heard us mention Jim Swan in multiple places. Talk to us about your experience with Jim, but then also bring Harry in as well, which is a name I'm not familiar with. And I, I said that to you in a, in a quiet moment, and I'll happily say it on mic as well. Um, I didn't know Harry uh, or Harry's name, and so I'm excited to hear more about that. So, so Nancy into Jim into Harry, and if there's anyone else left out, continue on into them as well. Will do. So Nancy Fraley came from the world of cognac. 
And she wore a lot of hats in earlier lives as well and is a fascinating human being to meet. She currently has a blending service and is based in Berkeley, California. But she comes from an incredible lineage of uh, people who have been in the Armagnac and Cognac worlds from the 1700s on. So her knowledge is impeccable. And she met me here uh, at the distillery in Virginia and immediately was kind. And she took an interest in who I was and my abilities and just singled me out. And uh, I'm just so grateful for her insights. I got to work with her in Texas a little bit at a blending seminar, um, have met up with her throughout the years at different places from ADI conferences on. Sure, sure. And uh, she's always taken the time and she offered to be my mentor. And she has three people she's singled out to be part of her lineage. And uh, one of them, it's a big word. (laughs) I'm still figuring out what that means, but I'm beyond honored. And so it's really because of that, that I got the, the lead blender title, I believe her mentorship. And so the way she approaches things and her thought process was just fascinating and inspiring. And it's that blend of science with art because you need to be able to see something and go, all right, this is isoamyl. This is why I'm getting that. This is what caused it. This is what we can do with it. You have to have that knowledge to back up mm-hmm. what you're doing. So it's a lot of fun of nosing and saying, this is great. But ultimately at the end of the day, you have to know why and you have to know what to look for. And I credit her with that. On the other side, you have Dr. Jim Swan and he passed away sadly in 2017, sadly. but he left us a beautiful beautiful legacy. Part of that was journal notes. Um, Part of it's a lot of emails that I'll comb back through and look at, but he was a maturation expert. And in addition to teaching us about working with the climate that we have and not against it, so making our Mm, distillate mm -hmm. match that, he talked a lot about the the barrels that we used to age in. And so he was the one who gave us the recommendation of using a lot of first fill bourbon casks. So in their first life, our barrels came from brown foreman distilleries. They've already had the harsher tannins taken away. And so for us, it's a a gentle interaction that gives you the expected notes, caramel, butterscotch, orange oil, cinnamon, you know what to expect. It's going to deliver it and work well with with our climate. He also got us uh, really wonderful connections in Spain and Portugal. So we have these bodegas we work directly with because of him. Mm -hmm. And so we have a really fun profile of sherry casks that we have gotten. And uh, he would say things like, you know, you should use these pheno casks, which were kind of unheard of. People like PX and they like Oloroso for working with whiskey. And he said, they're going to be late bloomers. And for two or three years, I panicked thinking, what what are these going to do? <laughs> and he was right. They're some of my favorite barrels now. These I mentioned Honey Nut Cheerio casks. Yeah. They're delicious. So Jim Swan knew what he was talking about. And uh, our favorite casks to talk about, he pioneered. Uh, for Cavallon Distillery, they were trying to source a lot of first fill bourbon casks and couldn't get any. And so he reached out to friends in Spain and Portugal, created this STR cask, Shaved Toast Rechar. And today we use them for roughly 25% of our distillate. Oh, wow. It's that's a, a big portion of who we are. Oh, I'm so glad you've shared that on the podcast. I didn't know that. Gosh, we just spent a few hours together and I didn't know that from you. That's great. Really great. So just a quick pause because I always have questions. What do you find STR? If you're using 25%, what are you finding specifically STR is doing with this new make spirit that we have in front of us? The first contributing thing I get is red fruit. So right off the bat, there is this bright cherry, 
rich raspberry. It melds to me into this milk chocolate note. Actually, it could be different types of chocolate. I found that it's going <laughs> to be chocolate some way. <laughs> it might be dry cocoa, mocha. You never know exactly uh, until you hit the cask and really get to know it. But uh, the fruit notes, blood orange coming in with the chocolate and then the nut notes like toasted pecan, mm. ginger spice on the finish. There's some of the most distinct, predictable flavors out of any of our casks. And there'll be some that I call cherry cola. You tried one that I called chocolate covered cherry. Fantastic. It's absolutely just, fantastic. Every one of them, you get these new notes that just blow you away every time. And I think our climate meshes so well with these casks. So not to be gauche, but to, to ask about the economics, just very quickly, and then we'll get back to Harry. We know bourbon, ex-bourbon, is your quote-unquote cheapest cask. And I'm, I'm sorry to use that word. I don't like using the word cheap. But we know your sherry butts are among your more expensive casks. STR, to me, sounds expensive. Are you paying a premium on STR that is then 25% of your of your fill? We absolutely are. Uh, in addition to saying cheap for the bourbon casks, I would say they're green because we're one state over from Kentucky mm. and it's a really easy process for us to bring them right over, which I love. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, sherry casks are expensive. These SDR casks are every bit as okay. expensive. Sometimes we're speaking the same more. language. Yes. Oh, sometimes more. It's wonderful oh, to have these relationships because they've been... Um, very cognizant of maintaining the quality of the casks. And for us, we've been able to experiment a little bit with the toast and char levels, which is wonderful to have that direct tie. And shout out to the Moore family because we're independently owned. They mm. definitely have understood quality from the very beginning and they don't believe in cutting corners. Well, and I think that's a, an aspect that will resonate with our listeners where when we spoke with Kirsten McCallum, she talked about being in charge of a wood policy makeover with you know her distilleries, Tobermory and Deanston and Bonahaven. And then in, in time, and, and I don't think we've had Ewan on the podcast, Managing Director at Aaron, but Joshua and I have certainly talked about Aaron having their history where they had a come to Jesus moment when they realized they were putting good spirit in poor wood. And in walking around your, your cask house today, you're not cutting any corners on any of those casks. And as a whiskey geek and a whiskey lover and as an independent bottler, I'm so excited to see where you are from day one with wood policy. And it, and it always strikes me that if you're going to go to the time and effort of creating a distillery, building a distillery, getting the word out about your distillery, you can't cut any corners and to have heard of, of Jim being here and leading that. You know, one of our beloved distilleries is Kilhoman. Kilhoman didn't cut any corners on wood policy. And at three years, four years, five years, yes, they were peated, but they were putting out phenomenal spirit. And in what I've tasted through your cask house today, it was all exceptional, really wonderful. And, and kudos to you. Thank you. You know, I think it comes back to the mentorship when the Moore family got us started, knowing that we were relatively young and inexperienced, 
finding the best of the best in the world of whiskey and listening to them really made the difference. So for us, the barrel program had to be great because we listened to Dr. Jim Swan and for the actual new make itself, the distillate and the process behind it, I credit Harry Coburn because as the engineer at Bowmore, he knew where everything should go, the quality of every piece. He came on site, practically lived here. <laughs> I remember Sunday mornings making tomato soup. It's the only time he's ever corrected me. I asked if he wanted tomato soup and he said, mm -mm. <laughs> but just that level of commitment and listening to them to this day, I believe he's 84 years old. He's retired, but again. he's still again, again, it's his third or fourth retirement. But Harry will always take my emails when I ask him strange questions, finding out about his recommendations from cleaning steps onward. He's always been available. And I'm so grateful for that wisdom because in a sense it's his legacy too. And you can tell that everybody here just feels that honor and that respect and responsibility. So wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. As, as Harry is looking to build a new make spirit and is looking at the mash and is looking, I assume at how much is grist um, and, and how you're building your makeup. What were you learning from Harry along the way of practical considerations when you're thinking about how your mash tun will drain, but then also how much flavor you're trying to grab from the grain, but then also your sugar and how much sugar you can pass forward in your wart that will then become your wash so many words that you got to be so careful with but wart into wash into distillate and then a conversation we've had with scottish producers so often and so many times is alcohol yield per ton of grain and oftentimes in scotland and i think to the detriment of some scottish producers we're putting volume ahead of quality. And, and you had a wonderful expression earlier that I've, that I've now forgotten the whole thing, but you were talking about quality over something. What, what's your expression that you used earlier that, in, that involved quality? Do you remember saying that earlier? I honestly don't know if I remember. It, it wasn't quality over consistency, but it was, it was that idea of letting the spirit talk for itself, which is great when you've got a spirit, but how does one create that spirit? How did you and Harry and, and others go about creating that? It's true. I think there's this temptation at the beginning to try to reinvent the wheel. When you're a new distillery, you want to figure everything out on your own. And for us, there were moments like that because Virginia climate, that's a big thing. And also mm -hmm. working with the barley, growing it here versus sourcing it. All of those things were learnings along the way. But something that came out very quickly was 70% middles, 20% husks, 10% flour. And there was a very clear reason behind that. <laughs> when you have more than 10% flour, it can turn into a gluey paste mm. inside the mash tun. And what a mess that is to get clean every single day. <laughs> so there were lots of things that we just did once and went, okay, 
This is what works. We're going to stick to that. We created a lot of SOPs to just make sure we understood this is how we're going to do things for consistency. Uh, of course, with the yeast, it took a little longer trialing out different types to figure out what we liked. Um, and of course, the ferment times. So we kept really consistent notes again and again. We were just recording everything. And just very quickly, I've heard from Brooklady about the speed at which the run passes through the spirit safe. At Kalila, how quickly th the same. But I've also heard how high or how low you fill your stills and then how quickly or slowly you run the distillate through them. What are you up to here? Are you able to talk to some of that geekery? Absolutely. All three of those are true impacts on the spirit itself. And you hear so much superstition, uh, you know, the <laughs> shape of a still, but it's true. And it's just one of those things where the more you distill, the more you start to realize that flavor can be impacted through so many steps. And so, yes, the speed and temperature can be the easiest thing to adjust and for us, that's been a big learning as well. I would say that for the first four months of distillation back in 2015 through early 2016, we were still ironing it out and figuring out what sure. we wanted to do. And we've set aside those first barrels that we filled because they don't quite fall into <laughs> the, the consistent character that we've since settled on. So that doesn't mean it's not delicious because it is, but it's different. I'm telling you all my secrets today. You are indeed. And I'm thinking Jason lives an hour up the road in Single Cast Nation. You know, and we just had that episode recently on Catoctin Creek, Catoctin Creek, where we took the two no cuts casks from Catoctin Creek. They had no use for them. They didn't fit in with the distillery style. There might be future conversations for Single Cast Nation and Amanda here. Exciting. <laughs> so, so I'm very aware of, I'm almost polishing off my new make spirit here. And we are very fortunate to have Cask 666 in front of us, which is a 2016 run of Virginia Distillery Company. Um, I don't know why I'm giving the details. Please give us the details, Amanda. You're the professional in the room. What what what, what is Cast Sixty Six? Describe it to us. Please. Well, what, we call I'll this pour. Spanish oak, and Jim Swan again came came to us with a recommendation for cast types. And when we were talking sherry with him, he recommended Fino, Oloroso, and PX casks. And then he said you should do one person of all your sherry casks as experimentals. And here's what I recommend. So these Spanish oaks are fascinating to me. Of course, they came from our bodega in Spain that we've been collaborating with for a lot of things, including some of those STR casks. Indeed. But in their first life, these barrels um, held Oloroso, then were emptied out, and PX sherry was put in. So as the staves are extra porous, you know, Quercus robur, it's much more, um, more porous and absorbent than, say, American oak. So Quercus Alba, we're used to, to using that for a lot of things, but this is something totally different. So here's why I love talking to people early, talking to them again, talking to them more. You told me exactly that in the cask house, and I completely missed the Oloroso followed by PX. I only heard Oloroso for the full portion. 
So Oloroso was matured, then bottled and sold. We're not talking about a seasoning here. We're talking about Oloroso maturation. Correct. And then the PX was put in it. Seasoning, maturation? My understanding is maturation as well. Wow. I know. It's a very wow. unique thing that this bodega does. And yeah. Oh, gosh. My my heart is, uh, gosh, I should check my heart rate on my watch here. This is through the roof. So Oloroso PX, the reason I wanted to sample this with you next to the New Make Spirit is something else you and I have talked about, is that Virginia distillery company DNA still appearing through significant cast maturation here, where we're five years in this Virginia climate that we're talking about, but Oloroso PX are big, 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 big flavors on a, on a new make spirit that is tropical fruits and a little bit buttery and chocolatey. Are you, talk to us here about where Virginia New Make Spirit DNA fits with this cask maturation, please. Well, the climate being so intense, you definitely see in the first year, um, it's the most intense interaction for us. So, in fact, the majority of evaporation you see in Scotland, usually it's what 2% angels mm -hmm, here the first mm -hmm. year, and then it goes down to 1%, even less after that. Our first year in these casks, we had, I believe, 8% evaporation. Mm. It was intense. And so you really had that wood character starting to drive through. But through it all, I've seen this dried apricot note just stay very consistent. It's that almost sometimes a juicy peach cling fruit. Mm. Sometimes it verges more on that dry, but it's always there. And it plays with this chocolatey note from the malt right, right behind it. And I love that progression of flavors so much. And of course, with these casks in particular, there's this candied toffee, um, hazelnut note coming through mm -hmm. that I really mm -hmm. love. And the finish is so soft but lingering. I like that balance because sometimes you have very aggressive finishes that just overpower or they drop off and you forget what you've had. That's not something you're seeing here. It's just smooth and sweet, but it sticks with you. That is well said. I've, I've, I've never thought of it like that, but soft but lingering. We talk about long finishes, lingering flavors, but that softness that continues to, to, to hang around here and then those lingering flavors along with that. I love what you're saying about the hazelnuts. It's drying, but pleasantly drying. It's spicy, but delicately spicy. It's doing a lot, an awful lot. And at close to 60% ABV, <laughs> I mean, it's it's something that can often be drowned out by alcohol, the heat of it, but this is never the case with us. And I think that that's also the character coming through as well. If mm. the distillate was off, um, it might overpower just with that aggressiveness. And this is the heat of summer right now. Correct. So it's even yeah. more delicate and, and subdued in the right ways. Could you talk more about that right now? Because I know we've, we've, we've talked about this you know, maturation not being linear, but you're even, you know, we're sitting here July 22nd, I'll give away the date. You talked earlier about a cask that delivered a green pepper note that you thought, oh no, what, what are we going to do now? But it was more give it another season. Could you talk about that, those seasonal peaks and troughs and, and even what you're seeing in different casks and what that looks like for you, please? 
Absolutely. I think the most straightforward is our base maturation cask. So for us, when we're talking our American single malt, we've learned there is this big seasonality. Uh, when it comes to cask finishing, which we do for our American blended malt, it can become even more intense because we're looking at even shorter times to get our data from. Mm. And mm-hmm. so, yes, you mentioned the green pepper note. We have played around with a coffee cask finish. Every year we would donate the proceeds from a single coffee cask finish to a charity near and dear to our hearts. Amanda can see my face. The listener cannot. Okay, please continue. (laughs) It it was one of those things where we brought over whiskey distilled in ancient Scotland, added our own distillate, so it's roughly 50-50, and then to really integrate those two whiskeys, we finished in a different type of cask. And so we've done it mostly in port casks, and also in cider casks because we give our, our used barrels to local cideries nice. and breweries. It's, it's fun to have that collaboration. Uh, but for this coffee one, I remember this is just a beautiful chocolate, vanilla, mocha coming through. Mm. Just gorgeous barrel, a little bit of baking spice on the finish. And I just kept waiting, thinking it's getting better and better. And then there was green pepper and I was <laughs> heartbroken. What did I do? I missed this window. What this a strange is destroyed. thing. And you're talking bell pepper, not like a jalapeno. Correct. Green bell pepper. And so I thought, well, we can't bottle this. <laughs> we'll have to wait and see if it can rally. And it absolutely did. By October of that mm. year, it had settled again. And I think that's part of the learning about the the breathing in and out of the staves and also the interaction of humidity. So we mentioned that we go into barrel at 62.5% ABV, but often the ABV will lower because even as the angel share is happening yeah. and alcohol is evaporating out, our barrels can draw in the humidity around them. Hmm. And that will absolutely impact the the distillate inside the barrel. That's remarkable, really remarkable. I'm just, I'm just trying to get my head around those t- that, that type of information because of thinking of such a humid climate and thinking of it being like your Cavallans, your Paul Johns, your Amruts, where you might see alcohol percentage spike here. Oh, India, look at that climate and see how dry and arid those staves can crack. It's incredible. They can wait a week and the whiskey can turn on them. It's amazing. It's... It's phenomenal. Are there there things happening in your your cask house that you're surprised by? I think the, the biggest surprise is... There are things you expect, like where the airflow comes in and how that might warp a barrel over time, proximity to a door, Mm -hmm. uh, things like that. Absolutely. We don't move our barrels. So we palletize almost all of them except for the sherry casks. And we have experimented with palletizing some of the sherry casks, which has been really fun. It's good for the space usage and movement uh, because for us, when we are ready to, to vat our whiskey, we can take it down by pallet and access it much more easily than if it's buried away. This is, again, we're just back to logistics because logistics interests me. Sometimes we hear from people with with palletized warehouses that you've got so much pressure playing on the cast on the very bottom that you're seeing leakage. You're seeing even a, a different interaction with the casks. How high are you going on your palletize? I'm thinking of people like Brooke Laddie who are a living high on, on their palletizing. Is there... Is there a happy medium? You talked about it. Space is finite, right? I I think a lot of whiskey connoisseurs, right? Right. I'm really trying to 
for another word for whiskey geeks who are our audience. I feel like whiskey geeks are kind of like, we get it. We get the business and we also get the geekdom. We understand there's a line between finite space and flavor. Is there a way you see yourselves going with your warehousing where you can take advantage of space, but you'll still be flavor first and foremost? I think that's exactly it. We never want to compromise on the flavor and the care of the casks. So because of that, uh, for us, 8 High seems to be working pretty well. And yes, we have had a couple leakers. Part of that, I think, <laughs> is the intense temperature swings more mm. than the pressure. Mm. But we're maintaining, we have sensors, as you saw. Uh-huh. So we get very uh-huh. geeky about the, the things to expect because of that. And we track everything. Uh, down the road, we will be building another cask house because... As you said, space is finite. Yep. And so it's that balancing of, of where things go. Accessibility, when we're ready to get them, is mm-hmm. huge. And yes, we have maintained things really well so far. And again, thanks to the Moore family for making sure we have what we need ahead of when we need it. How high are you going in the palletizing? I know I saw it with my own eyes. The highest we've tried with the sherry casks, we've now tried palletizing. <laughs> that is eight high. Oh, so, okay. yes, Oof. we had to get very special pallets that are double reinforced. And uh, that was that was scary, but they look great and they seem very stable. So there we go. Just, just on a silly side geek note here, and I, and I feel like I'm speaking geek to geek here. Do you find or do you think there's a difference on vertical maturation of a cask and horizontal maturation of a cask? I think the biggest difference is if there's any strain on the staves themselves. You need to make sure they're supported whatever way you have them, of course. So if they are vertical versus horizontal, then there is that difference of, okay, if they're laying down on their sides, is there a strain placed on the staves or are they properly supported Mm. on racks or whatever you have? Mm -hmm. Because you don't want over time that strain to result in cracks and leakage or other issues. No, that, that, that makes good sense. It's also interesting to think of the bung being on what I would consider the side of a cask, but you could potentially put the bung in the head of a cask if you were storing it vertically instead of horizontally. We've actually talked about that <laughs> and Go talked on. about filling from the top as well. Okay. So I think that is one of those things where after a couple of years, you start to get ahead of the game a little bit and start thinking, well, do we want to try this? Do we want to experiment <laughs> a little bit more? And that's one of those things, filling from the top we've talked about. And that's, I feel like that'll be a thing that, that Virginia Distillery Company will deliver to consumers as the years go by. But I only live an hour away, and this is my first visit, and then will not be my last visit, to the distillery. But I'm, I'm so intrigued by how much you're paying attention to detail and how many places where you're paying attention to detail. And I love the thought of of continuing to geek out with you on where you're seeing microclimate pockets and how you're finding maturation and where you're front loading and back loading and top loading. And and I feel like everything's on the table at at a young distillery, whereas I sometimes worry for, for Scottish distilleries, tradition is the number one 
marketing tool in history is the number one marketing tool in the SWA, and Josh and I have talked about this plenty on the podcast, the SWA does a wonderful job of protecting scotch, but is it also curtailing innovation? And so far in talking to you today, Amanda, it doesn't sound like anything's off the table. And you seem like the type of person who wants to pursue every angle and explore every angle. And it also seems like the, the, the mentors who came on site and the consultants who came on site, they were people who were looking to explore every aspect of the distillery. And so as you come to work every day, are you looking at furthering that? Is that something that is in your head every day when you pull into the parking lot? You know, I've thought about that particularly with Harry and Dr. Swan because I think they saw us here um, and places like us, New World, single malt distilleries as their opportunity to be creative, to be innovative and to have fun. And I love Scottish single malt. I love the tradition. I love the history there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I agree that for some of the, the people who've grown up with that, it can feel very restrictive. And so striking the balance between the creativity and the expertise, there's no reason to ever do something foolish when you have so much mm, wisdom that's a good backing word. you up. Um, but yes, you can be playful and you can be curious and there's still room to grow and I think there's still room to improve. So why not pursue that? I think a word that hits me a lot is hungry. Mm, we're, mm. we're fascinated by what we're doing and how we're doing it. And I love the American single malt world because we, we say all the time a rising tide floats all ships and we're all in different parts of the United States. We're all doing our own things that we're passionate about, whether it's mesquite smoke in New Mexico <laughs> or, you know, we all have our things that fascinate us and grab us. So there's room at the table for us to grow and to be creative. Uh, I love it when quote unquote interviews, we say it all the time, we're just having a chat. And you have now brought up the very next thing I was about to ask you, which is, you mentioned way back in the beginning of our chat, American single malt, and we're hoping that that will be finalized as a category in 2021. Fingers crossed, really hope it happens. What do you think the future looks like for that category? And you're starting to tease it out here, how regional do you think it will become, could become? Do you think regionality would be a good thing for a burgeoning national category? Or should we promote the national category and then let it become regional? I'm thinking about a tiny place like Scotland that's about the size of one US state that's got multiple regions within it. And then we think about something massive like the United States that necessarily has multiple regions. What do you think would benefit the category? And I love talking about categories. What do you think would benefit the category of American single malt? I think the biggest challenge for American single malt is the fact that 
In the United States, bourbon is this great comfort blanket. I think that people know what it is, and that is something that gives them confidence. Mm. And American single malt, because it is so new and relatively undefined, that's our biggest hurdle right now, of course, getting out what it is, letting the consumer know what to expect when they hear it. However, because we are so dramatically different in our flavor profiles, mm -hmm. in what we're doing and how we're doing it, that yes, I think a very short follow-up behind the category definition is recognizing the diversity in it. And bourbon by law now has to age in new charred oak. Mm -hmm. So there's immediately part of the definition is something that people know, okay, it's gonna deliver these things. It's gonna have at least 51% corn. So of course I want people to understand we're talking 100% malts of barley. We're mm -hmm. talking distilled, mm -hmm. aged and bottled at one location. There, there are definitely things that I'd like to have out there so people are informed. But yes, I think regionality is huge. <laughs> I think flavor is so important and that's just tied right together. So I'm excited for people to realize, I think it seems strange to have Virginia Distillery Company as the name of, of a company because it can be a little generic to hear, well, it's one whole state. Mm. But part of the reasoning behind that could be seen as, well, that's the first big impact on what the distillate is. The, the maturation environment is so big, but also, you know, all the things along the way where it's being made that contribute to what it is. Yeah, no, I think it makes perfect sense. And you and, you and I have talked today about farm to table dining and how that's so interesting to, to, to diners, to consumers, people who go to restaurants. But I also see the same thing in drinkers. And yes, here we are sipping on alcohol and it's great and it makes us feel wonderful. But we also want to know who made it and why did they make it in that particular way and what was guiding their ethos. And to have American single malt as a recognizable category will be wonderful, but I agree with you. I want to go to Texas and, and we've got good friends at Balcones, you know, and I want to go to Seattle and we've got good friends at Westland and Copperworks. And I want to come just down the road to to Lovingston. Lovingston, Virginia. <laughs> right. One stoplight town. Right. I, I think of you as just outside Charlottesville, but the address is Lovingston. And so I want to come down the road and, and see my friends here and, and see how see how that category is building and then seeing new distillers come online and what they do with their story in their place. It, it's really wonderful and really exciting. Two very quick things, actually three very quick things. Returning to Cask 666, which has sat in our glasses now for, for maybe 10 or 15 or 20 minutes, maybe longer. I've got this wonderful toffee apple note going on. I've got that dryness, but it's a sherry dryness. There's a spiciness. And as I've been sitting here with this new make spirit beside me, and you've talked dried apricot and you've, you've talked chocolate, I am seeing the distillery character running through cask 666. And I was just curious if there was more you wanted to add to 666 as we revisit it. I'm also struck by those notes along with baked apple. I think mm -hmm. that is just one of our core things too. And brown sugar on the nose. I'm loving the finish because it's almost molasses mm -hmm. right there. Mm -hmm. It's treacly, I guess. And mm -hmm. it's just that level of 
decadence that makes me know, okay, it has substance behind it. And yeah, the more I drink it, there is the citrus note like oh, lurking underneath. Good, good. That's, oh, we always talk about there are notes that will just simply lead you, but then there are notes that you discover. And that citrus, you're not just going to go put it to your nose or put it to your mouth and get citrus. I love you adding that in. Are you getting the citrus on, on the nose or on the palate? Where are you experiencing that? It's fainter on the nose. It's almost mm -hmm. a lemon peel there, and mm -hmm. it, it doesn't come immediately. It's something I had to work for a little bit. But then on the palate, it's there almost with a chocolate edge right mm -hmm. before that treacle comes through on the finish. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, we are deeply honored that this is the first single cast nation cask from Virginia Distillery Company. And we are excited for, for what the future holds with our spirit of collaboration uh, and just our, our friendly, geeky hanging out together and see what comes from that. With that said, on your mash bill, just as we've been sitting talking, I keep hearing chocolate, chocolate, chocolate. And it's something that we get with our friends at Westland. Do you have chocolate malt in your mash bill? We actually don't. Isn't wow. that funny? No chocolate malt. Wow. Do, do you have a sense of where that chocolatiness is coming from? Where's it entering into the process? I think it does still come from the malt, even though it's not chocolate malt per okay. se. But I think it's enhanced by the barrels. I think that there's this sweet note that is driven by the fruit component from these sherry casks mm -hmm. or Spanish oak casks that really just embraces that and they play off really well together. Mm. And then layering in the sweet with that earthiness. I love that because you don't mm -hmm. want anything one note like I've said before and the earthiness driving with that bright citrus just hiding out. It's mm. like it's firing on all cylinders. Oh, earthiness driving citrus is, oh, that's, that, that's a high moment for me. Um, wonderful, wonderful. Thank you ever so much. We always get out of here on one final question, and, and I, I think you could honestly spend about two hours answering this question, but if you can keep it to a few minutes, what are you most excited about as you embark upon the next few months six months, 12 months of your time with Virginia Distillery Company? I think I've been wanting to do single casks for a long time. I think whether it's cast strength or, or not, there's this exciting moment where you really get to see whiskey the way the blenders do. And I keep, when I've been working on products for the past few years, I keep thinking, oh, this is so good. I need people to have this moment with me. Like, I just want to grab somebody that I love and be like, right here with me, <laughs> hang out in the casket. That's what today has been, sharing what I love and what I see. And of it course, has. I love the process of, of blending different barrels together and vatting them appropriately and getting them to this beautiful spot. But sometimes it's so good. I want people to be transported to the cask house with me. And mm -hmm. so this opportunity to get people to see how good it is, I'm, I'm ecstatic about it. And I've been waiting for this. So tying that into the recognition and growth of American single malt, I'm grateful for people like you who are sharing this education and passion because single malt is a beautiful whiskey. 
it's my first love oh, yeah. and being able to put America on the map and say, we can do this and we can do it. Well, that is my dream. That is all I want. <laughs> well, and for us, and that's what I was alluding to earlier when I was talking about your quote unquote interview, this is just chatting. You know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm hanging out with a fellow geek and my time in the cask house was amazing and I'll be back. Um, question because we've got such a, a global listenership uh, and global supporters what what does distribution look like for Virginia Distillery Company in America and then how does it look like in Europe and then what do you have other markets beyond that Right now, we are just in the United States. We're hoping that over the next few years, we'll be able to grow beyond that. So by law, we can only ship from the distillery within the state of Virginia. Mm -hmm. So we have this D2C set up through Virginia ABC, control state. But we've partnered with Mash and Grape. So we can ship to 40 plus states through our website, vadistillery.com. And then we're now in 32 plus states, I believe. Uh, we're, we're growing. We just got into Texas and California, which is really oh, exciting. Yeah. A couple of pop states. Yeah, I like them. And uh, it's exciting to see just um, more accounts picking us up there, liquor stores. So I'm very excited. We have a whiskey finder on our website. So you can just type in the zip code or the city or the state and find the stores that have our whiskey near you. Oh, very cool. I, I know that listeners of the podcast, members of the nation are very supportive of us, obviously, but also those the, that we speak to, enjoy time with. And I will say Virginia Distillery Company is well worth seeking out. And this is the beginning of a, a wonderful relationship. Cheers to that. Cheers, my friend. You know what was so nice about listening back to this interview? Mm -hmm. And firstly, I've got to say it was wonderful. The, just, just hearing the conversation... And, and that little surprise at the end that we've been wanting to, to shout to the world. Uh, and, and just hearing Amanda, she was, she was just awesome. But what was so nice about it was I was slowly sipping on my sample of Cask 666. Mm -hmm. And, and I, remember, I remember when we first got the sample and, and I, you know, I'd, I'd met the, the person who was with Virginia distillery company at the time she used to live in the next town over and mm -hmm. uh and so we met in person and she handed me the sample and i remember seeing the color and, and being so excited about it and then when we poured it together and nosed it and tasted it all i can think is this is as good as any 12 to 15 year old glenn farkless heavily sherried malt Speyside slash Highland whiskey, like close your eyes and you're transported there. How this American producer can replicate a style so well. And it's not, it's not as if they're, it's not as if it's a facsimile. This is truly their wonderful and delicious hey. spirit. Exactly. But they were able to capture a particular style so well um, that I, I just, 
don't even know how to say it. Like I felt transported to Speyside, but I also felt listening to her voice transported down south. Like it's this wonderful marriage of, <laughs> of Virginia and Speyside, which just is wonderful. Well, what I liked was was the recounting of Jim Swan saying, you're a tropical climate. Mm. So let's think about what that means for spirit and maturation. And, and as much as you heard there, he wasn't in charge of spirit at Virginia Distillery Company, but it was taking that spirit. How do you make it mature as well as possible mm. in this warm, summer, humid climate that then gets really cold in the winter? And so how do you dance that dance? And so to have something at this age, which is, has now turned five, but to have it at that age and still be this rich, this complex, mm. and as I'm just sipping it now while listening to the interview, on the finish I've got these chocolate-covered espresso beans mm -hmm. that give a heft yeah. and a presence and a wonderful, pleasant, drying quality mm -hmm. to the very rear of the palate that is a mature whiskey. And, and, and again, we've, we've talked about this for years and years now, but we really need to get out of the old habits of maturation and years of maturation as we talk about single malt from around the globe yes. in climates that look nothing like Scotland. And I think we've done a good job with Amrut. We've done a good job with Paul John. We've done a good job with Cavalan. But I think we need to continue doing a good job with America, with Australia, with mm -hmm. hell, Wales, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like there, there are different ways to be talking about this. And so, I, I, you know, to bring this back to how we started today's episode, that I think is going to be an important point of communication with our consumer as we go forward over the next five years. Yeah, I, I think this is the second time this episode I'm saying this, which has me really nervous because I don't normally say this, but I, I could not have said it better. <laughs> Listen. Let me say one more thing. Okay, go ahead. Look at the commitment we're making to this selection mm -hmm. with Virginia Distillery Company. We're putting out a butt of five-year-old Virginia single malt mm -hmm. from an incredibly expressive Spanish oak butt. There are going to be a lot of bottles to go around mm -hmm. here. Plenty to share, plenty to put in front of people, plenty to put in front of friends when you bring in your bottles. Like, there's a big commitment going on behind this distillery. Mm -hmm. and, and I have to tell you, in being inside that warehouse, in seeing the the recommendations they took from Jim Swan and what they're currently maturing in, mm -hmm. you know what Colhoman means to me. And you know what Colhoman's range of casks means to me. They're a Jim Swan distillery. I am beside myself with where Virginia Distillery Company's casks are already yeah. and will go in the future. And so I'm I'm a hundred percent committed here. I am really behind this distillery. And as much as 
you know, the nation knows how we talk about Westland. You know how much Jess loves Westland mm -hmm. and what Westland are putting out into the world. You've heard us with Catoctin Creek, you know, you know, obviously you've heard me talk about Colhoman, obviously where you are with Penderin. Mm -hmm. I'm mm -hmm. a big fan of Penderin mm -hmm. as well. Virginia Distillery Company is going places and I'm excited. I'm going to be down there a hell of a lot more uh, than I was between zero visits and one. The rest takes <laughs> off from here. <laughs> <laughs> you just needed the one to get the ball rolling. That's right? exactly correct. But uh, right, so you you really took the words out of my mouth. Mm. You know this, mm. the fact that we're jumping into this with a full sherry butt that's likely to have five hundred plus bottles in it. This whiskey's worth it. It's it is really worth it. This is something that I you know, I have spent the past almost nine months trying to figure out what bottles I need to put to the side for Mimi's Bat Mitzvah later this month. Mm -hmm. And if this were on my shelf, it would definitely be something that I would open up for her Bat Mitzvah because it's so gorgeous and luscious and rewarding and complex, but at the same time approachable. It's, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me a bit of... And this came out 10 years ago, came out in 2009 or 2011, one of the two. The uh, Master of Malt, Glenn Farkless, 11-year-old Movember bottling, mm -hmm. right? Yep. This is up to that quality, which is just an everyday drinker. But if you just took a second to pay attention, you'll notice the prunes and the toasted pumpkin seeds and the chocolate-covered espresso beans, like you had said, and the dates. And and there's also some fresh tropical fruit in here. There's, you know, I'm, I'm getting like persimmon on this, on the finish as it starts to dry out. It, there's so much going on. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to me that you started out today talking about your your unnamed Highland mm -hmm. that was such a good Rosh Hashanah dram. Oh, and I, and I yeah. just, right? <laughs> yeah. And I think here we are sitting with 666 and everything you're describing. Mm. I'm like, yeah, I'd, I'd celebrate Rosh Hashanah with this. <laughs> I think this would fit the new year quite beautifully. <laughs> Anyway, I want to thank you, Jason, for, for, for driving down to Virginia Distillery Company. Thank you to Amanda for taking time, um, you know, to meet with you, to take you around the distillery and the warehouse to talk with you. Uh, we have a picture of you in the warehouse. We have a video of you drilling a hole into the cask, so we'll be sure to post that. And, and that's, I just want to say thank you again, right? This is another one where, where you went out on your own. And, and you conducted an interview, and, and I always enjoy the interviews where, where it's you one-on-one -on -one with someone. Yeah, cheers. Yeah, it was, it was fun. It was really fun. I, I really was blown away. So thanks to Amanda as well. The whole team down there as well. Uh, I met more than just Amanda on the day, and, uh, and that was very cool as well. They were closed for uh, COVID protocols. Mm. Uh, they hadn't yet reopened. But um, I had my vaccines, I had my mask on me, and um, 
and we were very safe moving around the facility, but nobody in any danger whatsoever. And I tasted mm, so many things. I'll tell you another one. Right. I don't know if I'm allowed to tell you this. I'll just whisper this as we get out of here and transition to the news. As as we first went into the warehouse, mm-hmm. and we and we met the Shh, the, the warehouse down, man, Jason, and, and that's I know, we met the warehouse yeah. man uh-huh. yep. who was tremendous as well. And, yeah. and between he and Amanda, yeah. they started me off right. with an ex bourbon cask, first fill bourbon cask, nice, nice, yes. Virginia Distillery Company yeah. expression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And immediately my mind started thinking Glen Murray, and yeah. I and I said that yeah. at the time. It was it was distillery character driven, mm. it was bright, it was fresh, it was fruity. Yeah, yeah. The bourbon just complemented it, shh, and it shh, and it made it me down. think of the journey yeah, that journey. we anticipate taking yeah. with Virginia Distillery Company. Mm. There's going to be some real bright ex bourbon in there, and just as we're talking Glen Farkless on the sherry, I think we could end up talking Glen Murray on the oh. bourbon side. It's going to be exciting, but let's wake up the paper boy. Extra, extra, read all about it. Life story of Playboy Penny. Extra, 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 read all about it. Me and that Playboy and Tubby. What do we have to share with our listeners, Jason? Because I know you said we're going into the news, but I can't think of what news we have to share. No, I, I just wanted to have a news segment where we could say... Retail release number seven mm-hmm. is getting farther afield across the United States. Mm-hmm. September saw it come into New York, mm-hmm. New Jersey, some of the release coming into Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, not not into Connecticut, but some coming into Rhode Island. And, and uh, the whiskeys have been into Massachusetts as well. So unfortunately, it's not in my home state, but but you've got the surrounding states that are now chock full of single cast nation. It's not in my home state either. So here we are. Right, but we both have <laughs> challenging states. You have a control it, state, and I have a state that it, charges us two hundred bucks per label to register. It is in the mid Atlantic, though. Uh, I yes. know that we have had some people reaching out. Um, it's not quite an email segment, but I will say, because perhaps we haven't said this before or haven't said this much, there is a distributor exclusive milk and honey in the mid-Atlantic. Can I, can I pause you there? Because I, you know, we, we did something that wasn't very smart. And that not very smart thing was when we got from our bottling hall, the number of cases that were produced from that cask and, you know, all of those cases we imported to the U.S., we then started creating our allocations of this state will get this number of cases, this state will get that number of cases, and, and so on. But we forgot to save a bottle or two for you and me. And, and so I needed to get a milk and honey. And I wasn't looking for the prestige Ledroit one, which was for the Mid-Atlantic. But I did find a shop um, that had a milk and honey, but I wasn't thinking the distillery exclusive one. So I bought it from that shop down in the mid-Atlantic and I was sent the prestige LeDroit one, the one that I wasn't looking for. I was looking for the, the, the national release one. And so I said, you know, if I have to suffer my own whiskey, I'm going to suffer my own whiskey. That prestige LeDroit one 
the one that's exclusive to, to D.C., Maryland, and uh, what's the other state? Delaware. Delaware, thank you. Uh, it is smoky summer in a glass. It's like smoked lemon curds. It's gorgeous. Wonderful. Wonderful whiskey. 100%. But the the other one, though, and this is the reason why (laughs) I was looking for the other one, I had forgotten that the other milk and honey three-year-old, let me say this the right way, the Prestige LeDroit one was three-year-old unpeated malted barley matured in an ex-Isla cask. The other three-year-old was peated barley, and that mm-hmm. was one of the first peated barley milk and honey single casts that I'm aware of. And so I was really interested just to revisit that, because I have my sample, but I, want, I wanted a full bottle. And uh, so I, I still have to get a bottle. I'm so glad you brought it up, though, because I ended up getting a bottle I, I wasn't expecting to get, but I was so happy to get in the end. Yeah, no, that that is incredibly fortunate. That That's a wonderful discovery. And so if we haven't mentioned it previously, and if, if Prestige LeDroit, I haven't mentioned it in any of their channels, maybe they have, maybe they haven't, I just simply don't know, then there is that exclusive for them in the mid-Atlantic. So yeah. there's always something worth searching for. But that's retail release number seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, retail release number eight is being bottled and labeled. Mm-hmm. And as we said in the last episode, should hopefully be in the United States by October. ROW3 is being bottled and being labeled. And we will speak to Jess very shortly uh, and discuss ROW3 with her. I don't want to give, well, first off, thank you for teasing the fact that we have release number eight coming sometime in October. Mm-hmm. I don't want to share all of the bottlings that will come along in that. Uh, we will in the next episode or two, but I, I think that it's important to point out likely our biggest release. Because this one, even though it's a single cast nation release, it's a second water of life film collaboration. Hugely important. Yep. Right. Hugely important. Uh, very good friends of ours, of the podcast, of our company, just good people in general. We, we, now it is a single cast nation release, but we basically combined six casks of whiskey to create this water of life film bottling. Now, it's from a distillery. We're not allowed to say who it's from. We can't even be cheeky about it. We can't say things like, Glenn, who likes more oranges? Or, <laughs> or boy, I'd love to go and play leapfrog. Stop talking, Joshua. Right? Stop talking. You're making I, me nervous. I'm just saying, we can't say a word. But what we will... What I will say is... <laughs> uh, there's about 1,600-ish bottles, somewhere around there, yep, of yep, this. Yep. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a good batch. It's a good batch. It's bottled at 48.8% alcohol. Really lovely drinking strength on that. Yeah, a and number. And it's, it's one of the lowest cost uh, bottlings in release number eight. Uh, definitely below a hundred bucks for sure. Maybe maybe somewhere in the eighty dollar, eighty five dollar range. Could be a bit more depending on your state, but a good sixteen hundred ish bottles uh, produced. So I'm really excited about that. And then there's, well, we have six other bottlings that are part of this release, um, yeah. which has me really excited. for that. 
for that Water of Life film collaboration, for that second go around there, it's a very fun label. And I think it really speaks to them and mm. their profession. Yeah. Uh, and I, I thought it was it was so fun when, when it came together. But also that whiskey, it's incredibly accessible, mm-hmm. which I know can be a word in some circles. It's a little bit like smooth, but but for me, accessible can speak to the season. Mm. And if you look at small batch and you look at the fun that we had putting together a small batch, this to me is the type of bottle when somebody comes over to your house, it's the first thing you pour when they walk in the door. Yes. Right? Yep. Right, it's, it, and it's forty-eight-eight. Right, if you want to move into single cast stuff, it cast strength. After that, yeah, go crazy. But this, to me, is a very welcoming tram, mm-hmm. and that's what I mean by accessible. Yeah. I, I, I could use accessible and welcoming interchangeably, but but it also speaks to the relationship, right, and that accessible, welcoming relationship. Mm that we have with Greg and Trevor and Alphonse and and the team at Water of Life. And and I love that being reflected in liquid. What do we keep saying? I know we said it not too long ago. Mm. Whiskey is community. Whiskey is friends. Whiskey is friendship. And even when we're selling something via lottery, there's a checkbox that says, I won't flip it. I will open it. I'll share it with family and friends. Mm. That was absolutely to the forefront of our minds when we were working on this small batch. And just to be clear, I, I was going to bring this up, but now I feel that I uh, that I really need to bring it up. Just to be clear, our initial Water of Life collaborative bottling was for online only. What we're talking about in this case, these are this is a retail release. So this is one of seven bottlings that we're bringing in. So there's no lottery, there's no box you have to tick that says you will share, that you won't flip, blah, 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 all that stuff. This is retail, though we hope you will open it and share it and not flip it. Just yeah, I'm it. excited to get yeah. my hands on bottles of it so that I can do that very thing. Yep, yeah, same. Oh, I can't, I cannot wait, but I have to, and here we are. Do you think you'll buy, do you think you'll buy a case? I think what we'll do is when we create the allocations for various states, we will allocate ourselves each a case. (laughs) In our states that aren't represented by... exactly. Anyhow, I won't go down that path. So, yeah, I I love the fact you're teasing with that Water of Life uh, collaboration number two. Mm. And I'm excited to share it and, and get it out there. And then we'll follow up. With more more bottlings, more details, more words, more jests, the more o- chitty chat. Hell, maybe we'll talk to Elijah. Who knows? The only- Do we ever talk to Elijah? Sure. Listen, Sometimes. Listen- Speak, speaking of Elijah, he's coming up in the next segment. Okay. Before we go to the next segment, the last thing that I want to say that sort of takes this Water of Life second collaboration out of the standard remit of what Single Cast Nation do is not only is it six casks married together. This is a non-age stated whiskey, right? So we, we don't explicitly say the age. What we're explicitly telling you is that it's priced really well. It's bottled at a wonderful ABV and it's delicious. There you go. Yeah, done, done and done. Yep. At this point, we normally transition into the email portion mm-hmm. of proceedings. Mm-hmm. 
And sometimes people Instagram message us. And sometimes people Facebook message us. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people just tie a note to the leg of a racing pigeon. Uh, More correctly stated, it's a homing pigeon, but... That's by the by. I like the idea of but, a racing pigeon. I, me too. I, I love the <laughs> the immediacy of it, the the emergency status of it. But in this instance, we got a string of text messages from our our very own Elijah. And the reason that I'm bringing this up at the start of this segment is I felt personally attacked. And so I I want to share that personal attack with our dear listeners. Okay. And so Elijah texted us to say, can we all agree to never recommend Del McGay Vida? Yes, he did say this. We are way beyond that, even as an entry-level mezcal. So he so he was he was cool and calm in that statement. He then very quickly followed it up with a text that said, I'm yelling in my car now, which he then followed with another text that said, I'm yelling at my phone, which he then followed with another text that said, I'm yelling at this Vida talk. For a, for a gentleman in his late 20s with a family, he was getting very animated. Yeah, very. very animated. So I responded to him with... I promise to only recommend this instead of Vida going forward. And it was a total gag link that was a horrible mezcal with a worm in it. That, that I, was, I was just winding him up. And so before I could say to him, okay, tell us your one. What's, what's your mm-hmm. go-to? Mm-hmm. What's your recommendation? Because you had you'd recommended the Fidencio, mm. uh, mm-hmm. their entry level and... And you got no pushback on that. I, I really got the, the harsh pushback. But so Elijah did make his own recommendations. Mm-hmm. But b- before we get to that, I want to jump ahead in the conversation because <laughs> f- for me, it's okay. Well, what is the problem? What are you seeing here? If the, the appeal for me with Vida is it's everywhere. It's a great entry price. You can pick it up. And you can get a sense of mezcal. Yeah. And I, th- and I thought Elijah, he had a pretty good response. He said, he said, offering somebody Vida is like offering someone Johnny Walker Red or Jack Daniels. They were classics at one point in time, mm. but now they are mass produced, sanitized, adulterated, and overall inferior products. Hmm. Now, mm-hmm. he's a young man, right? Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a hint of youth. And we were, this was a private conversation that, that wasn't intended to be shared on the podcast. So he, he spoke a little bit off the cuff. I, I think he would clean up some of those words mm-hmm. if we invited him onto the podcast to discuss it. <laughs> but, but I think the thrust of it mm-hmm. is such. The thrust or the authrusk? <laughs> perverts. <laughs> The thrust of this is there are those products that are baseline. Mm-hmm. And if and if you were looking to get into them back in the day, they would have been your delivery point. Yeah. But the day has moved along and there are other things that you can offer up. So 
I'm not even sure how to pronounce the first one here, but he, he makes five recommendations, one of which is Real Minero, yep. which you and I have talked about on the podcast. Mm-hmm. He recommends the Respidine. He talks about Re Campero, Habali, or Espadine. You and I, even in that conversation, talked about Re Campero, mm-hmm. right? He mentions Oaxaca, Madre Quiche, or Espadine, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and Oaxaca, we, we know, we, we haven't talked about them very much. Tosba, mm-hmm. Espadine, which is one I've seen. I have not had Tosba. I haven't had that one yet either. Okay, right. And then the one that I've been saving to last, because I don't know how to pronounce it, is Derambes San Luis Potisi. I, I felt... Nay clue. Nay clue. I felt that I was in Oaxaca when you said that. You, you're, I, I know that you're lying I was to my a, very thought face. thought I was with a, na- a native Oaxacan. I know you're lying to my face. So, so there you go. So I also know... That Elijah, since our podcast, has reached out to James Foster to A, make other recommendations, and B, send him samples. So, so it, here's the thing that I don't know if we've really... I know we did the episode where Elijah sent out the blind samples and, and we had a, an amazing time sharing mezcal together. Elijah is a mezcal evangelist mm-hmm. who at all times says... I really don't know anything about this category. I'm really... And it's just not true. It's yeah. just patently false. Yeah. Like, I love the modesty of it. Mm-hmm. But he really believes in this category. And he really wants people being introduced to the very best that this category has to offer. Hence him getting a wee bit animated in his car while listening to the last episode. And why I felt the need to bring him back into this episode so that he could speak directly mm. to what, especially I was saying in that last episode. Yeah, I, I, I've I, purchased my fair share of bottles of Vida and they've all been fine mezcals, right? There, there's nothing wrong with them. Would that be my one to suggest, right? You always suggest it. I don't always suggest it. It's not a go-to for me, but I understand why you say that. It's meant to be an entry point. And I think I think it sits comfortably as an entry point. I don't think it's necessarily fair to compare it to the Johnny Walker Red of Mescal's However, I would argue that Johnny Walker Red, even modern Johnny Red, can be an entry point for some people. Just because we don't love it doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad product that can't bring, right? It's a door into the category. Going back to our conversation with um, Robin Robinson, everybody finds their door, their door into it. Is it a door? Is it a window? How do you get into this? To doorway. Well, and another another aspect for me is is you're sitting in America, I'm sitting in America, and Elijah's sitting in America. And, and to be honest, so is James Foster. But not everybody listening to this wanting to get into Mezcal is sitting in America. And Jess added to the conversation saying none of those recommendations by Elijah are available in the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And, and then she added, Vida is fancy here. 
And I, I had a conversation. I mentioned yeah, this in the podcast previously. Yeah. Right? I had a conversation in a cocktail bar in Glasgow where Vida was £70 a bottle for them to bring into yeah. their yeah. bar. And so, yes, we can have this deep, nerdy, evangelizing conversation about entry-level mezcals when we sit here in America. If you're trying to get into this around the world, yeah. Vida is your Johnny Red. It It is still present. It's still something that will introduce you to a category. So while there may very well be much, 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 much better entry-level recommendations, where you are in the world might still leave you taking Vida out of a store, which doesn't have a fucking worm in it, which ought to still be celebrated. We, I think it's also important to think about individual palates. There are certain people whose palate just may never be able to differentiate between a Vida and some El Hogorio Habali or Madre Quiche or, or something like this. To them, it could just be, that's mezcal. This one may be a bit smokier. This one may be a bit sweeter. But, you know, not everybody buys a product to say, now I have to tear this apart and see what it's like and compare it to this one. Some people just want to have a drink in their glass, right? <laughs> and and I think I think Jess's point is a good one about, hey, not everybody's in America. Think about our, our friends in Australia, right? We've we've got a really big listenership from Australia, um, in the UK and South Africa and Typically, you're not going to find these fancy schmancy mezcals there because they're all being brought into the U.S. So, I yeah, yeah, if I could, if I could give Elijah one takeaway here, I think Elijah's message is be authentic, and regardless of your marketplace, be as authentic as possible. Yep, and don't settle for anything that seems to be less than authentic. And, I, and I, I love that messaging. And the reality might occupy different rungs of the ladder, mm. but I think that is, is good messaging and important messaging and, yep. and why I value Elijah. Yep. That's, that's all good and fair stuff. There you go. So who else do we have? Do we, do we have another? We do. Are you in charge? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Take it away. <laughs> We have a few emails. In fact, we've got one that came in from Tim Mushaw, which even leads off and it says, this may be too long to talk about in an extra extra, but he gave us an article. So maybe it's not too long for an extra extra. That, that one talks about the word smooth and why it's so thorny. There you go. Which, that, that seems interesting to say smooth is thorny. I would think of a thorn being anything other than smooth. Oh, oh, but I like that. I like that play on words. See that? Somebody knew what they were doing. But we did get uh, another email. So we'll we'll read that another time. Uh, In fact, we may do it for an extra extra. But we got this email in from Colin Mares, the the pluralized Colin. And, And it's titled, or the subject is, Greetings from New Zealand. And then it leads off, he says... Ki kia ora kotu, which means greetings to you all, several J's and an E. 
I thought it would be best to send you this rep- I thought it would be breath. I thought. <laughs> <laughs> what are words? What are words? Red, yellow, leather. Red. Le- <laughs> Just send it out of the coracle, chap. Red, yellow, blue, green, orange, purple, chartreuse. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Okay, now we've got Joseph's amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat sorted. What does the email say? I thought it would be best to send this reply to you as an email since it appears to have been a revelation to Jason that such a thing as an Instagram message exists. It's been what a- now? <laughs> uh, it's called an instantaneous uh, gram. Instantaneous <laughs> gram. <laughs> Which I th- I could probably convert that to ounces, but um, I think you know grams. <laughs> anyway, it's it's been a while now since the first mention on the podcast of my having the avocado spirit sent to you. You know, this is perfect because we were talking about the Water of Life film. Yeah. And we were hanging yeah, out with yeah. them, and that's when you drank the Water of Life film, and we're talking about Australia, which is really close to New Zealand. I drank the Water of Life film? This is a revelation to Joshua. No, we drank it with the Water of Life film people. Yes, we did. Those are all the words. Okay. I thought it was high time I should get back to you. The avocado spirit certainly sounded dot, 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 (laughs) dot, 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 interesting. My apologies. And smooth. <laughs> and smooth. My, oh, that's thorny, Jason Carroll. My apologies <laughs> to you, Jason, that it ended up going to the place where samples go to die. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true, Colin. It's true. I, but if we ever show up there, we can, we can drink anything we want. So. It's like Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. So he says, I believe Joshua did eventually share it with you, though. Your thoughts? And there's a bit more to the email here. Do you want to share your yeah. thoughts? Before we go on? Oh, what? No, what's the rest of the email? It's long. We'll come back to thoughts. It's lengthy. It's lengthy. Is it? Yeah, it's lengthy. Okay, okay. So, so the, my, my thoughts are definitely not lengthy on that, on that drink. We had spent an evening with the, the Water of Life chaps and had a blast. Mm. And then we went back uh, to a wee bothy, a oh, basement bothy that was fantastic. Oh, that was wonderful. Yep. Uh, it was still good. And then we drank a wee bit more and the avocado spirit came out and was passed around. Uh, my recollection of it was that that tropical nature of it. Was there pineapple juice in it? So it's not very clear because it says that there's pineapple and lime, but it doesn't specifically say if it's infused with mm. or if there are notes of. But given how intense it is and given that it's, you know, a 20 some odd percent yeah. liqueur, I want to say that there is flavoring added. Yeah, it was it was it was bright, it was fresh. I could imagine it being poured over vanilla ice cream. Mm. Um, oh yeah, yeah. I, I, th- I think as we discussed way back in the the episode where you tasted it, uh, and I watched you taste it, which is always an effect of tasting, was the the, the avocado. Which you hear the fats, you hear the oils. It didn't have that going on. It, mm. And if I didn't know it was an avocado spirit, I would never guess it in a million years. But would it be a component of a cocktail? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Would it be lovely over vanilla ice cream? Absolutely. Was it was it fun? Absolutely. So I really appreciate Colin 
sending it to you and I appreciate you bringing it to PA where we all got to have some fun tasting it. Yep. Would I reach for a bottle? Would I go buy a bottle? Let me just say, <laughs> I don't own a bottle and so there's your answer. Oh, I tell you, you mix this with a bit of rum and maybe some some pineapple juice, <laughs> maybe add a dash of uh, Aperol in there or some sort of bittering quality. I think you could have something. What a fucking pervert. <laughs> I'm almost there. Anyway, so so he goes on. <laughs> he goes on, and this is great because he had just gotten done listening to season, season five, ep- episode nine, when we were talking with Lee and Bree from Backwoods. And he says, mm-hmm. to answer another of your questions from the Lee and Bree episode... Oh, good. Yes, there is an old Zealand. Remember, we said is New Zealand ah, was there an old one? Yes. And he's and you ready for the? What do you think the old Zealand was? If you were to take a guess, what's old Zealand? A pub. Old Zealand was or is in the Netherlands. Okay. Oh. So he says now. Was it known as Old Zealand or was it just known as Zealand? Well, let's 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 hear him out. So he says, I'm popping on my my tour guide hat here, and he says, the Dutch explorer Abel Tasman, ooh, as in Tasmania, maybe. Yeah, oh, that's right. interesting. Yeah. Was the first Old Tasman went crazy. That's where Tasmania got its name. Abel Tasman. He sounds like he may have been a, a member of the tribe, right? I guarantee this dude was circumcised. Anyway. Uh, the Dutch explorer. To a man with a hammer, every person looks like a nail. <laughs> what what song do you think a Moyle sings? He doesn't sing "If I Had a Hammer." He sings "If I Had a." There have to be songs about cutting and love. And I'd circumcise in the morning. I'd circumcise in the evening. All over this land. Get me to the bris on time. <laughs> The Dutch explorer Abel Tasman was the first recorded European to have sighted New Zealand in 1642. The land soon became known to the Dutch as New Zealand, N-I-E-U-W-Z-E-E-L-A-N-D, after the maritime province of Zealand in the southwest of the Netherlands. The name Zealand literally translates to English as Sealand. Zealand? Sealand. <laughs> That's very good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. checks out. Yeah. That tracks. In addition, so the, yeah, this, this is so great because he's not asking a question here. He's giving us answers. And I really, oh, I'm loving I really it. Yeah. like this. In addition, yeah, in addition, Australia was known to the Dutch as New Holland. Ah. There you go. Of course, Holland being much more well-known former Providence, now a region on the west coast of the Netherlands, a strong British influence from the whalers and the sealers, and Captain Cook onward soon anglicized the name to New Zealand. The other commonly used name for this land is... I'm going to spell it for you, and you, and you can try to, right? You, I want to hear how you think it's pronounced. A-O-T, the number seven, a doubt, no, I'm joking. A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's clearly old um, Eritrea. 
Yep, I remember that from my school days. So A O T A A O T E O T. So it's a it's a Maori name meaning the land of the long white cloud. Oh, which is which? That's what we used to call you, the old white cloud, and then you cut your hair. That's. <laughs> can, can I just interject very quickly? My eleven-year-old yeah. saw me get out of the shower today, yeah. and 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 towel off, yeah. and he said, "You are so white." <laughs> and I, was, I was like, "Yeah, you're looking at Scottish skin, my dude." <laughs> like, yeah, I really am white. I don't. This is. I don't know why people are still surprised by this. Carry on. And so then he goes on and he says, it was great to hear Connell and Alex on your recent uh, Adelphi Art and American episode, both good friends and friends of the New Zealand whiskey scene. As Con- ah. Yeah. So as Connell mentioned, Whiskey Galore's Dramfest is going ahead in Christchurch on the 26th and 27th of February, 2022. We don't know yet if distillery representatives from Scotland or elsewhere will be allowed to attend. If they can't, I'm sure the good folks of Whiskey Galore will have something up their sleeves to make the event a memorable one. And and we get close to the end here. And and this is good. He's giving us more um, information on on Dramfest, which I've always been interested in. I've heard very good things. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Dramfest is usually held over the course of the weekend in February March on even years. So if not for Dramfest 2022, then maybe all you J's and E's will be, may- will be able to make it down here for another year's Dramfest and extend your trip to do some Lord of the Rings touring, visit some distilleries, and much, much more. <laughs> By the way, a New Zealand distillery slash distilleries padcast episode would be great to hear. Sorry, it would mm-hmm. be great to hear. Nick Ravenhall touched on some of them and raved mm-hmm. about his visit to Wahiki Whiskey. Perhaps Wahiki, Kadrona, Thompson's, or one of the other whiskey producers of New Zealand would be up for joining you on the air. And then he closes off. He says, oh, this is so good. Uh, Slanjava the New, T-H-E-N-O-O. What does that mean yeah. in Scottish? What is the for- New? For now. Ah, for now. Colin, the plural mares. <laughs> <laughs> whiskey, gla- whiskey guy at Glengarry's Victoria Park, Auckland. Terrific. I, 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 that, was, that was wonderful. I love that level of knowledge being dropped upon us. I know we, we joke about not doing research for the podcast and we just kind of wax lyrical uh, about things, but we're always up for more information and... And yeah, I the l- land of the long white cloud is is very, very apropos. Uh, which just sounds like an issue with gas, but that's another that's another story. <laughs> but but I I personally love that that our listeners seem to be taking on their monikers with with a with a with a sense of pride with a small p. I think. Right. Well, Andrew, the sh- Andrew Miller, the champagne of beers, is all over that one. Champagne so that's of good. People. And sea bass, yep. uh, Chris Sebastian has, mm-hmm. has adopted sea bass, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that that makes me happy as well. Yeah, yep. there you go. And, and and there are more. There are more. So many more. Uh, so many, many more. so Colin, the pluralized mares, the pluralized mare mares. Thank you so much for writing in. What a joy to get that and a good bit of education 
And I love not having to answer a question. So we just got an answer. That was just, oh, I didn't have to think. I just had to learn. I like that. Yeah, we're, we're definitely on board with this idea, getting more uh, Australian, New Zealand producers on the show. Uh, we definitely want to be talking more. As we've said numerous times, we want to get down there. We want to meet people face-to-face. Mm-hmm. Colin of the plural mayors is, is definitely on that list. Getting off to distilleries. It, it's all there. If, if only this fucking pandemic would just fuck the fuck off. Uh, we could go back to living our normal lives again, mm. which would have us out and about seeing wonderful people. I anticipate that day happening at some point in the future. It's just not yet. Yeah, I think the I think the official the official phrase that you say to this pandemic is just get to, right? Get to. Oh, I wish it would get to. <laughs> There's me do to boot it. Well, Jason, that is all that I have. If you, do you have anything else you wanted to add before we make like a fetus and head out? I want to add that that was a ton of fun. You and I are, are working on this podcast the middle day of a three-day weekend and just pouring Lefroy together and pouring the cast 666 together and mm-hmm. you know, you're pouring your unnamed Highland there. Just sitting here chatting and listening back to Amanda, listening to Colin and recounting the, the chat with Elijah and Jess. Just a ton of fun. Mm-hmm. Good, good mm-hmm. way to spend a Sunday afternoon together. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. So uh, let me let me add one thing. I'm, I'm going to raise my, I'm going to pour a little more 666. Oh, yeah. I have to pour a wee something more as well. And as we're pouring this, I'm going to raise a glass to you. Hold on. I oh. got to get the right glass. All right. Yep, yep, yep. That's the one I started with. Okay. Oh, yep. God. Does anything smell better than an empty Laphroaig glask? <laughs> glask. It's been a good afternoon. You know what I mean. Uh, I would say potentially an empty Kilhoman glass. Potentially. Maybe an empty Lagavulin glass. I just normally refill my empty Cologne glasses. That's the mistake I keep making. I will say I, I nosed my empty 666 glass yeah. and it was it was toffee apples from my youth, oh. which I've, I've spoken about on, on prior episodes. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, for us round about Guy Fawkes, yep. November 5th. Yep, yeah, this is, that, oh, that is so good. Now I can't get caramel apples. Out of my right. head. Oh, and in just two right. weeks, we're going to have the two or three weeks. We'll have the uh, the Guilford uh, Fair, the, our fair, which is going to be wonderful. I get a caramel covered apple with the nuts, and we get a lime ricky, and we get some um, um, fried dough as well. In this aroma, I'm I'm also getting something like a ramen noodle, a real dark broth ramen noodle with a good soy sauce umami mm. presence. So what I wanted to say with a bit of whiskey in the glass. Yes, report, yep. Is nearly drank it. Is to you and to our fellow Jewish listeners a very happy new year, happy Rosh Hashanah, Lishana Tova, which is for us that's a Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, that's the 7th and 8th of of September. And to all of our non-Jewish listeners, I wish you a, a convivial uh, September 7th and 8th and hope that you're just spending your days 
with good friends, with good family, with good things in your glass. And I think it's important to just celebrate the good things in life as the world kind of falls apart. There's a lot of silver linings out there. <laughs> and I think that's what we need to focus on, the silver linings, the good bits. Well, and, and looking at the seasons, if you're about to welcome fall in the Northern Hemisphere or spring in the Southern Hemisphere, boy, are those both excellent seasons for dramming. Are they ever? Are they ever? And so here's to, here's Lashana Tova and here's to dramming in a wonderful season for it. Two chins. Two chins. So with 666 in mind, I want to see if you and I can do this from memory. Do you know what I'm about to do? No. A little Iron Maiden. Just 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 the the part before the song starts. I was never an Iron Maiden fan. Come on, woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil sends his beast with wrath. No, woe to you, O earth and sea. Fuck, I forgot it. <laughs> And then he goes, well, thanks for that, Dad. <laughs> then he says, for the devil sends his beast with wrath because he knows the time is short. Let he who hath understanding reckon the number of the beast, for it is a human number. It's number. It's 666. It's interesting to me that Bruce Dickinson was such a huge Monty Python fan because as you recited that, I was... Felt like I was in a, uh, a skit, a sketch from Monty Python. That's all sounded Python to me. Uh, what's the drummer's name? Something McBrain. Nico, that's his name, Nico McBrain. So I'm watching him, and he's got just a right Cockney accent. <laughs> so, so then my dad told me, oh, all right, son, you're going to play the drums. And he was like just every Cockney python character there was <laughs> that documentary is worth it just for the nico mcbrain interview alone wonderful to, to anybody who's interested in music uh, and monty python and iron maiden um <laughs> so anyway